A reading from the Gospel of Luke, 145 A.D. And he came into Nazareth, where he was having been brought up. And in accordance with his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the day of the Sabbaths, and he stood up to read aloud. And a book of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And after he opened the book, he found the place where it was having been written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's commissioned me to preach forgiveness to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to commission in forgiveness those who have been shattered, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And after he closed the book, he, after he gave it back to the assistant, sat down. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were staring at him. But he began to be saying to them that today this writing has been fulfilled in your ears. And all were testifying him, and they were marveling because of the favorable words that were going forth out of his mouth. And they were saying, Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, You'll no doubt quote this parable to me, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard was done in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that not one prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was locked up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine on the earth. But Elijah wasn't sent to one of them, except into the house of Zarephath the Sidonian, to a woman, a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, and not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the congregation were filled with fury when they were hearing these things, and they led him up to a brow of a mountain on which their city had been built to throw him off the cliff. But he himself, after he passed through their midst, went off. That was a reading from the Gospel of Luke. The first thing we have to talk about is that Jesus stands up to do a formal reading from the book of Isaiah, which, at first glance, it seems fine, nothing wrong with that. But the first century synagogue was not Nam. There were rules, and what Jesus is doing here is reading a Haftorah portion, or prophet's portion. Now, in the synagogue, the Haftorah is a reading from the prophetic books that follows a reading from a Torah passage, and it's supposed to explain and illuminate the Torah passage. And I hate to have to be the one to tell you this, but the Haftorah reading was not actually being done yet in the early first century when this tale is set. Guess what century it actually originated in? I'll give you a hint. It's part of the name of this podcast. Now, if you were to ask a Jewish scholar, did first century Jews do an official Torah reading in the synagogue? They would say, yes. I mean, there's no question. Now, Philo mentions it. 
Even inscriptions talk about it. But if you then ask them whether there was such a thing as a Haftorah reading in the first century, you know, then they'd be like, eh, well, you know, because there's no indication that it was being done yet at that time. Now, at the end of the second century, the Mishnah does proudly state that the Torah has been read in synagogues since the time of Moses, in fact, and that is not correct, strictly speaking, but what they mean by that is that the Torah has been read in the synagogue since well before the author's time. But when it comes to the Haftorah, the Mishnah is noticeably cagey about its origins, and that indicates that it was something that had only recently developed. So the prophet's reading, prophet's portion, wasn't part of the synagogue service at the time of this story, or even in the 80s AD when theologians like to claim that Luke was written. Another thing, this synagogue in Nazareth apparently owns a scroll of the complete book of Isaiah, which would have been expensive as shit, especially for such a non-existent town as Nazareth still was in the first century. But at any rate, what's clear from this story is that the prophets are being read in the Jewish synagogue in the gospel author's time, and he therefore sees no difficulty in imagining that that was also happening way back in 30 AD. You know, in his mind, a random synagogue in Nazareth would own a complete scroll of a prophet book, and people in the synagogue would get up and officially read from it. There's some other interesting things in this passage. Jesus reads from the Septuagint, in a Palestinian synagogue, which, okay, I mean, to me, that's kind of like going to a church today and solemnly standing up to read a passage out of a Bible coloring book. But I kind of have some sympathy for Jesus here because I myself would insist on reading from the Septuagint back when uh, I was in one of those Zoom Bible study groups that I talked about in episode five. I actually have two Septuagints here at home. I've got like a big old timey fire and brimstone one and I have the NETS, NETS translation. And towards the end of my tenure in the group, the group leaders really didn't like me anymore and they long stopped calling on me for readings. But there was one guy in the group who did like me for some reason. And when it was time to do the reading, he'd say like, you know, we should call on Chris because I really want to hear what the Septuagint says on this passage. You know, in the group leaders, you could just see their expression over Zoom. They'd be like, God damn it. Okay, Chris, go ahead and do the reading, you know. So I identify with Jesus here. Another problem, Jesus is not only reading from the Septuagint, but he's reading a bizarre hybrid horror movie mutation of a passage where it's supposed to be the beginning of Isaiah 61, which is part of what's called the third Isaiah. But he sneaks in part of Isaiah 58, 6. So not only did you go to the Palestinian synagogue where everyone speaks Aramaic and they expect you to either read Hebrew or possibly read some kind of Targum, but instead you chose to read the problematic Greek translation of their Bible. And not only that, but you read it incorrectly. And not only that, but after you read it, you sat down and told everyone that the passage was actually about you. Like, did Jesus lose a bet or something? And like, this was his punishment? Or was this like a Hellenistic truth or dare? Like, I dare you to go into that synagogue and just act an absolute fool. But the main point of all this is that this story, this incident occurs in what I'm saying is the earliest layer of the Gospel of Luke. So in other words, the earliest layer of the Gospel of Luke begins with an anachronism. But we're going to illustrate today how the Gospel of Luke was written and what the process was 
how it took the final canonical form that we know today. And we can see some evidence of it here, because if you notice, there's three things about the flow of this story that stand out. You know, the first thing is that the crowd is said to be bowled over by Jesus at first. They marveled, you know, isn't that Joseph's son? But then only a few minutes later, they're suddenly enraged and they try to kill him, in fact. And the second thing is that Jesus mocks them and says, you know, any minute you're going to ask me to do the same things I did in Capernaum. Well, at this point in the gospel, Jesus had never been to Capernaum. He only goes there later in the narrative. And the third thing is that Jesus gives, for some reason, two unique responses to the crowd. You know, first he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And then he says, I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel, etc." I mean, what, is Jesus like the T-1000 and his brain is scrolling through a list of things to say? And first he selects one, like, truly I say to you that no prophet is welcome in his hometown. You know, and then he's like, oh shit, that wasn't the right response. You know, and then he just keys in a different one, like, truly I say to you that there were many widows in Israel. You know, so much about the Gospel of Luke is revealed by reading this passage and answering the questions that come from these strange breaks in the narrative. Now, my belief is that the original Gospel of Luke, the first draft, what we can call Proto-Luke, was a document that only focused on the ministry and preaching and miracle working of Jesus. And it effectively began with this hometown synagogue story. And the author of Proto-Luke generally was working off of at least two sources. These sources were what we call Q, which is a document that Matthew also had access to, and the author's own smoky imagination. But at a later time, after this proto-Luke had already been circulating, someone else picked it up and engaged in some editing. That editor took what we're calling proto-Luke and added material from the Gospel of Mark, as well as some more of his own unique ideas. And that editor was also aware of the Gospels of Matthew and John. And in certain key places, he harmonized the text of his new version of Luke to those books, especially Matthew. That editor was also the author of Acts of the Apostles. And the sum total of his work was a two-volume set. Luke's Gospel was presented as Volume 1, and Acts was presented as Volume 2. Now, in the story from our reading, the statement that the crowd marveled and wanted to confirm whether this was really Joseph's son, that line was taken from the Gospel of Mark and was added into this pre-existing story that had already been in Proto-Luke. Now, that's why it's so jarring when we read that part in our time. Now, Jesus is saying that a prophet isn't accepted in his hometown was also taken from Mark. The later editor of Luke's Gospel noticed that that line in Mark would fit in quite well with this synagogue story, so he added it here. That's why it now looks like Jesus responded to the crowd twice in a row, because he begins two consecutive sentences with the phrase, truly I say to you. Now as for the thing about Capernaum, where Jesus seems to imply that he's already been to a place where the story hasn't taken him yet, let's leave that for a moment. I said that this synagogue story with the reading and the Isaiah scroll and the heckling crowd came from a proto-Luke. And I said that proto-Luke more or less began with this story. In any event, it was the first thing of significance to happen in the story. 
and I said that Proto-Luke was completely unaware of Mark. So we can imagine this story as leading the original gospel without those awkward intrusions from Mark, you know, the, the hometown quote and that thing about Joseph's son. What Jesus was doing here in the proto-Luke was announcing the beginning of his ministry and its purpose and what it would look like and its universal scope. And he foils the crowd trying to kill him by teleporting through them, uh, which is a sign that they can impede God's purpose. And he goes from the hill down to a level place and he preaches a sermon of ethical teachings, especially focused on the downtrodden and the poor. Thus far in the story, he hadn't done any miracles except for maybe warping through the angry mob. But the next thing he did after his sermon in the proto-Luke was go to Capernaum, the place that he'd mentioned in our story. And when he was in Capernaum, he healed the servant of a Roman centurion, a Gentile. Now, the Roman centurion is a precise parallel of Naaman the Syrian, whom Jesus also alluded to in our reading. Naaman was also a foreign military commander who was healed with the help of Elisha. Now, immediately after this episode in the proto-Luke, and even in the current Luke as it sits on the page, he goes to the town of Nain and resurrects the son of a widow. And this woman is a precise parallel of the other ancient example that Jesus alluded to, the Sidonian widow in 1 Kings, where there was a severe drought and Elijah met her at the town gate, just like in this Jesus miracle story where he meets her at the town gate. She has an only son, just like in the Jesus miracle story. And there, as here, her son was in mortal danger. In the first King story, she said to Elijah the famous line, I'm gathering a few sticks so I can go in and prepare them for me and my son so that we can eat it and die. But she then follows Elijah's instructions and she and her household eat for many days. Now, Jesus had brought these up as cases in which the blessings of God extended to the Gentiles, and he is now in the proto-Luke being immediately depicted as doing exactly the same thing. And right after this story in the proto-Luke, and indeed in canonical Luke still, Jesus is asked whether he's the coming one, and he answers affirmatively, and circles back to the very same passage that he'd read in his synagogue adventure. In the proto-Luke, we then get a series of teachings and dialogues, and they all either come from Q or from the author's own invention. And these stories serve to expand and illustrate and illuminate the big sermon that Jesus had preached earlier, what we now know as the Sermon on the Plain. So that is what the proto-Luke looked like. Jesus began by preaching the promises of the third Isaiah, good news to be proclaimed to the poor, forgiveness, sight would be restored to the blind, the oppressed set free. And he was rejected by the old familiar opponents of the gospel authors, the Jews, the congregation in the synagogue. And he takes his message to Gentiles and we can visibly see the results immediately in the healing miracle and the resurrection miracle. And then we get to see Jesus actually at work in his ministry. And that was the book. And it didn't include a trial, didn't include a crucifixion, and it, it didn't include an empty tomb or a translation into heaven. In short, it did not include any material from Mark. But at a later date, someone used this book as the core of a new gospel, our modern form of Luke. And part of their process was to infiltrate material from Mark into and around that original core. And this brings us back to the Capernaum thing. In the current form of the gospel of Luke, Jesus actually goes to Capernaum twice. 
You know, things like this, they've led many to speculate that maybe Capernaum was like a sort of a home base for Jesus. And he, he just kind of uh, periodically struck out from there to do miracles and insult Pharisees. He's kind of camping, you know, like in a first-person shooter. But if you look at the language used in the current form of Luke, it's clear that both trips to Capernaum by Jesus were originally intended to be unique trips. They come from two separate sources being stitched together. Because as I said, in the original gospel, Jesus left the synagogue from our opening reading. He then did the Sermon on the Plain, and he then went to Capernaum for the very first time ever, and he healed the centurion's servant. And then he went to Nain, and he raised the widow's son. But in the canonical Luke, someone has come in and added material from Mark. So that now, Jesus leaves the synagogue from our opening reading. Then he goes to Capernaum to do the things that Mark said that he did there. Then he goes to the Sea of Galilee, as Mark said that he did. Then he wanders around Judea generally, again, following Mark. But then he goes back to Capernaum and he heals the centurion's servant. In other words, this keynote miracle in Capernaum is now found somewhere closer to the middle of Luke's gospel. So how can we best account for that weird statement from our reading where Jesus implies that he's already been to Capernaum, even though he hasn't yet? Well, I think it was merely foreshadowing. The author is foreshadowing an event that will occur immediately afterward in the narrative. I think the way to look at something like this and the way to look at all of canonical Luke generally is to understand that we have here a carefully crafted, thematically unified construct that has been thrown out of joint by the infusion of alien material from a foreign source, and that source is the Gospel of Mark. The point of this whole exercise is that I want us to get used to tuning out the noise, specifically I want us to imagine a Gospel of Luke in which Mark is the secondary term. An original Luke in which Mark and his Jesus and his career of Jesus was unknown. So understanding Mark as the secondary term is going to be crucial today. But what we'll also see is that this earlier version of Luke, before Mark came into the picture, is still visibly a product of the mid-second century. You know, the anachronistic Haftorah reading is only one small part of it. Because the Jesus that's depicted in this proto-Luke, the pre-Markan Luke, is the Jesus whose mission is to the whole inhabited earth. It's a Jesus who views Judaism as a distinct and separate entity that has been superseded. It's a Jesus who not only has no compunction about ministering to Samaritans or Gentiles, but crucially, doesn't even seem to understand why such things were ever a problem to begin with. It's a Jesus who's literary and late, even in this most ancient layer, this most ancient stratum of Luke's gospel. And that's what we'll be exploring today. Now, in discussing the literary themes of Luke, we had help from scholarly works by L. Michael White and L. I. Levine, among others, but I would actually like to digress for a moment before we begin the show, because there's one more thing I want to say about this story. Actually, it's more of a question. Was Jesus literate? I recommend that you type that as a query into a search engine one day and just, just kind of take a ganders at the results that come up because it illustrates pretty much everything I've been complaining about over the whole lifetime of Born in the Second Century. Now, the answer to the question, was Jesus literate, should be yes. You know, like he knows how to quote the Septuagint from memory, but not just that, he can conflate different passages from it at will. 
He's able to extemporaneously proof text out of obscure, arcane rabbit holes in the Jewish scriptures. Uh, he's depicted as reading from a frickin' scroll in this story from Luke. If we're using the Gospels as a source, we are pretty much forced to conclude that Jesus was literate, but the consensus mainstream opinion seems to be that he wasn't literate. Now, why? It's because the governing paradigm is that of the minimum Jesus, the backwoods genius reformer of Judaism who uses salt-of-the-earth parables and impressive magic tricks to advance a deeper understanding of the kingdom of God and or the imminent end of the world and the dawn of the messianic age. But if Jesus was literate, and not just literate, meaning he could read a mile marker or like read the inscriptions on money, but literate to the extent that he could do complex proof texting off the Torah, well, that implies that he had an education. It implies that he went to a school. And Jesus being educated in a school breaks the minimum Jesus paradigm for many, many, many reasons. And so what do we see? Uh, Jesus was likely illiterate, just by nature of his being the son of a manual laborer from Galilee, and all these indications that he could read, like him teaching from a scroll in the Gospel of Luke, all those, those are just later elaborations by the Gospel authors. You know, you see, the paradigm says that Jesus was illiterate, therefore Jesus was illiterate. You know, forget what it says in this story from Luke. Jesus reading from a scroll was just something that the author made up. Because in the minimum Jesus discourse, the facts are to be fit around the paradigm, not the other way around. We're effectively being asked to take the gospel seriously as sources except where they conflict with the paradigm. So that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. But keep in mind, the minimum Jesus paradigm is necessary for so many. Now, despite how it makes a hash out of all these so-called sources, it's especially important to what I call the ship-in-a-bottle Christians. And these are usually ex-fundamentalists who did a stint as atheists and now they've rejoined the fold and they've constructed a view of Christian origins that's palatable and acceptable to them with a Jesus who is a relatable yet outspoken, strong character. And I've talked before about how the minimum Jesus paradigm is actually a religious paradigm at its core. You know, the idea that a world historical movement came from the simple preaching and faith of a backwoods bumpkin. When you look at the Abrahamic faiths generally, you do see an emphasis on humble figures who lacked education, but nonetheless did something significant. And we see it in Christianity generally with the assumption that the minimum Jesus was illiterate. Uh, we see it in Islam with Muhammad. And we even see it in things like the Church of Latter-day Saints, you know, the Mormons with Joseph Smith. And it's a trope that occurs all throughout the Jewish Bible. You know, who am I, Lord, that I should be the one to do these things? And so we see that this foundational concept that comes ultimately from Judaism is being preserved by the mainstream theologians in their views of the historical Jesus. It seems to be important to them that the humility and the modesty of Jesus's background and circumstances be preserved. And this is because the modern view of the historical Jesus is, at its core, a means to preserve the wondrous and miraculous elements of the gospel story of Jesus, but make them palatable to modern audiences. You're listening to Born in the Second Century, and it's now 5 p.m. on February 15th, 2022. This is episode 21, hosted by Chris Palmero.
Rules for the host. Number one, don't be crazy. Rule number two, no conspiracy theories. Rule number three, redacted. It's a secret rule. I'll never reveal it on the air. Rule number four, never say interpret. Rule number five, no Adam, no Eve. The music for today's broadcast was provided by the recording group Pompeii Gray. You can find information about Pompeii Gray in the episode description for each show. I hope that you'll rate and review this telebroadcast on your favorite platform and that you'll check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash born in the second century. I'm going to start doing two bonus shows per month. I've already started that this month, February of 2022. The first bonus show for this month was unlocked as a free show and now appears as episode 20. It was a satire of an apologetics podcast. In the next bonus show, because I want to give exposure to more radical scholarship, I'm going to discuss an article called Early Christianity's Letters that appeared in the Journal of Higher Criticism, and we'll find that it touches on a lot of the topics we've discussed, the pseudonymity of Paul's letters in particular. And we're going to go over internal evidence for viewing the New Testament letters as literary or theological constructs, that is, treatises, in fact, and what implications that has for Christian origins. I want to release these bonus shows in the first third of the month and the last third of the month. As for the main show, it'll come out around the 20th of each month, generally. And I know I'm being cagey as hell, but the point is, you are guaranteed at least one main show per month. And I will aim for between two and two and a half hours or more of content on the main show. And the bonus shows are usually about 30 to 50 minutes each. And what this means is that even though the releases of Born in the Second Century shows are less frequent compared to maybe some other podcasts, the amount of content is still in the range of about four hours per month, which puts us on a par, actually, with uh, a weekly podcast that's maybe doing, you know, one hour a week or something. And that's before you even mention the actual quality of the content. And we welcome our newest supporters. And I'm pleased, but also somewhat disappointed, to inform you that we have tapped out our Second Corinthians references. I was using lines from Second Corinthians to thank the new members, and we've exhausted that wellspring. So, fuck it. We're going to 1 Corinthians. We were enriched by Andrew in all speech and knowledge, especially knowledge of German. Andrew's help with some uh, German translation that I needed for research for this. I thank Alan, and I urge him that there be no schisms among him, as I know that there won't be. Through Linda, a wide and effective door has been opened to us, even though there are many adversaries. Jeffrey, an OG fan of Born in the Second Century, we welcome him, for he's doing the Lord's work, as I also am. I, I'm i not really doing the Lord's work. I'm, I'm just really just quoting from what the letter says. Tuomas has refreshed my spirit and yours. I rejoice over the presence of Meredith. And as for Peter, we know that Satan demanded to sift him like wheat, but his faith didn't fail, and he's now turned again and strengthened his brothers. I, of course, had to cheat a little bit there. I pulled that last one from the Gospel of Luke. Thanks again to everyone. Top news story this week. Brother of the show Irenaeus, the early theologian from the 190s AD, has been promoted by the Catholic Church to the position of Doctor of the Church. Good job, buddy. Doctor of the Church basically means that he's now considered a great theologian. It's kind of like in that game Civilization IV, where you could spawn great engineers and great artists and things like that. You know, and on this show, we haven't really had occasion to talk about any doctors of the church until now, because the majority of them come from the late antique period and later. But 
Now we have our very own doctor, a guy we quote from very often in Irenaeus. I've already declared Irenaeus to be a brother of the show, and maybe that influenced the Pope to also promote him, maybe he caught wind of what I was doing, you never know. So we have Irenaeus, Jerome, and Eusebius as our brothers of the show. To be a brother of the show, you basically have to have lived at a time where you were in a position to tell us quite a bit about early Christian history, but instead you chose to write a bunch of bullcrap. But I do hope that the descendants of Irenaeus get to benefit from this in some way. Perhaps they can be awarded some back pension or something. What's interesting to me about all this is the reason that the Catholic Church actually gave for promoting Irenaeus to his new position. They say that it's because he was a bridge between the Eastern and Western Church in that he came from the East and he settled in the West and he supposedly became a bishop there. You know, what's interesting is that that information does not actually come from his own writings. That comes from either secondary writings about him or excerpts by someone who claims to be quoting him. Because let it be known that Tertullian, who writes very shortly after Irenaeus, does not know Irenaeus as a bishop. He knows him as a writer of books. He calls him that very exact inquirer into all doctrines. So that's suspicious, but what I'm guessing is that this promotion of Irenaeus is just another instance of the Catholic Church trying to tie up one of its loose ends to take care of an item that's been on its Skyrim quest log for some time, which is to unify the Catholic and Orthodox churches, mend the Great Schism. That's what it seems like this Irenaeus thing is in aid of, with him being honored as a, a bridge between East and West. I mean, both religions have stated in principle that they would like to reunite, but I mean, we're burning daylight here. You know, every day that the Catholic and Orthodox faiths remain separate makes it less likely that they'll eventually reunify. But if these faiths are ever in a position to reunify, like you should be very afraid because the world at that time will have far greater problems than the fact that the Orthodox and Catholic churches are separate. You, know, you should be stocking up on Radaway at that point because these are some of the two laziest organizations going. And if they manage to work out all their issues and reunite, then something major must have happened and it's probably something no one's going to like. But let's not dwell on that. I don't want to take away from the glory of Irenaeus. It's his day, in fact. But we'll certainly talk about him again today. We continue with the Bright in the Corners miniseries in which we investigate the traditional arguments for the dating of each New Testament book. I will say that the Synoptic Gospels are not really the primary topic that I focus on because, you know, my view of Christian origins is largely built on the idea of Christianity being the product of like a merger of various competing sects. And the Synoptic Gospels really only represent one sect, the early mainstream church, just editing the same basic document and passing it back and forth. Now, when it comes to demonstrating that the Synoptic Gospels have a late date, I mean, that's not a problem at all. We can more or less do that effortlessly, but through all these discussions of the Synoptic Gospels, we have to keep in mind that the reason that they've been so prominent in our thinking up until now in reconstructing the picture of early Christianity is because of all these damn quests for the historical Jesus. And, and the idea that if we could only look at these things side by side in the right way and get behind the text, we can find out who the real Jesus was. And that's not really my focus. But what I hope is that we on this show can normalize the perception of the Gospels and begin to view them only as somewhat notable sources. 
because they're not intrinsically more valuable than something like the letter of James, for example. In fact, I think that a very good case can be made that they are less valuable than the epistles because with the gospels, the authors are being very careful to always say the right things and sand down the rough edges of their source material. But today we are going to discuss the Gospel of Luke, and as we did with Mark and Matthew, we're going to show what a flimsy foundation the conventional arguments for dating Luke are built on. Now, some might be disappointed by what I'm now about to say, which is that I am not planning to include John's Gospel or Acts of the Apostles in the Brighten the Corners miniseries. That means that after Luke, we're most likely going to be doing Paul's letters, but I urge you not to lose heart. The reason I'm not doing John and Acts yet is because I had planned a whole series on those books before I started this new effort. So we'll ultimately be getting a lot more out of those two books than we would by just briefly treating them in the miniseries, kind of leaning towards doing the same thing with the book of Revelation. I think that a series on John and a series on Revelation will be some of the most rewarding for listeners because those are the two New Testament books that get brought up most often in the mainstream. As for Acts of the Apostles, I mean, it's the reason I'm doing this show to begin with. I have the most to say about it. And out of all the New Testament books, it's the one that lends the greatest support to my hypothesis. So I'm going to be putting a lot into that. But today we're going to follow our usual formula. Uh, we'll be covering Luke over two episodes. Uh, the first will deal with the composition and the structure and also its reception and its terminus dates. But pretty much all the discussion on its date will be in part two, which will be next time. And the question we should be asking throughout today's episode is whether anything about the composition and the reception of Luke implies an early date, a first century date. Back after this. In episode 19, we covered the Gospel of Matthew. And I said that we could afford to very much simplify the standard view of Matthew because Matthew follows Mark so closely that it can be considered to be merely a revisionist edit of Mark. But we will find that it's not so straightforward when it comes to the Gospel of Luke. When we talk about Luke's Gospel, we have to first be aware that this book went through several versions or revisions. So let's lay it out. The canonical gospel of Luke, as we see it in our modern New Testament, is structured this way. It begins with a prologue, and then a birth narrative, and then it follows the course of Jesus' ministry. At a certain point, Jesus embarks on a journey to Jerusalem. It takes up the whole middle section of the gospel, and on that journey is where we see the bulk of his preaching and parables, things like the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, they occur here. 
Then Jesus reaches Jerusalem and we then get the events beginning with his entry into the city all the way through his arrest and trial and death and resurrection appearances. And then it ends. Then we turn the page and we get the Gospel of John. But after that, we seem to find a continuation of Luke's Gospel in Acts of the Apostles. And Acts begins with another prologue presented as being by the same author as Luke and referring back to Luke. And then Acts continues, and we do see similar themes and similar linguistic traits that show up throughout it that would indeed suggest that it was written by the author of Luke. So that's the overall lay of the land. Now, Luke's gospel itself appears to be using at least three sources, and this most everyone recognizes. And those sources include at least the gospel of Mark, uh, the common tradition with Matthew, which is often called Q, and it's controversial, which we'll get to, and the author's own unique material, which may or may not come from another written source. And since the 1920s, that material has commonly been called L. So we've got Mark, Q, and L. And the conventional view of Luke's gospel is that someone began with Mark as a framework and added Q and L, almost exactly parallel with what Matthew did that we remember from episode 19, where he began with Mark and he added Q and M. But there's a problem with this view of Luke, and that is that Luke's gospel does not appear to have started by using Mark as a framework like Matthew did. Like, Matthew absolutely needed Mark. He required Mark. And Matthew does rearrange Mark's order here and there for thematic reasons, but he never strays too far from it. Mark is always a kind of a grounding wire for Matthew. Another way to look at it is like Matthew is like a loyal dog when it comes to the text of Mark, whereas Luke, on the other hand, is more like a cat. You know, Matthew is heavily interested in what Mark is doing and saying all the time. Like he always goes back to his bowl for more Mark material you know, wagging his tail, looking up at Mark expectantly. Luke, on the other hand, seems like he's putting up with Mark. He kind of toys with Mark and his material, and he, he bats it away when he's not interested. You know, he puts up with Mark like a cat puts up with his owner. And it is my belief that cats are not actually domesticated animals. What we in fact see is that Luke hardly ever follows Mark word for word. There are certain places where he does, but for the most part, he paraphrases and expands and rewords. And sometimes he closely follows Mark, and sometimes he completely abandons him for chapter after chapter. So here's what I think happened. There was an original Gospel of Luke, what we're calling for convenience Proto-Luke, that we talked about in the opening reading. It was written around the middle of the second century. This book was a series of vignettes of Jesus' miracles and his teaching and his parables, and they were thematically related with the through line of the book being the Isaiah 61 verse that Jesus reads in its opening episode. Now, in this proto-Luke began at what is now Luke chapter 3, verse 1, where the author lays out the time period in which these events take place. And the first story that it contained was the synagogue preaching story from our reading. And it went on to give a record of Jesus' ministry that was constructed around Q and the author's own original material. And in this original material, we see that the author is already taking a long, historical, retrospective look at the ministry of Jesus. And this is what we're calling Proto-Luke. Now, at some later point, this Proto-Luke was picked up by someone whom we'll call the redactor. This redactor was the person who, quote-unquote, wrote Acts of the Apostles. And I say, quote-unquote, because Acts of the Apostles is clearly amalgamated out of pre-existing sources. 
But this redactor sought to combine Acts of the Apostles with a gospel and present the gospel as the first volume of a two-volume set, with Acts being volume two. And the gospel that he chose for this was Proto-Luke. And it was this redactor who was responsible for adding the material from Mark into Proto-Luke. In other words, the original author of Luke was not aware of Mark. Certainly at least did not have the text of Mark in front of him. You know, maybe he'd only heard it read or even only heard about it. Maybe someone described it to him. So now the redactor has supplemented Luke with material from Mark, and he's now presented it as volume one of his two-volume set. And this redactor also added a birth narrative to Luke. And the redactor, who did his editing very late in the day in terms of chronology, he was also aware of Matthew and John. And so in his editing of Luke, he tried his best to harmonize this new Frankenstein's monster of a gospel that he was compiling and bring it somewhat into line with those other two as best he could. And what this all implies is that the proto-Luke did not include a record of Jesus's death, or birth for that matter, or baptism. Now, there was a major theologian in the early 20th century named B.H. Streeter, that is Burnett Hillman Streeter. And his view of the Gospels and how they were put together was the governing paradigm for many decades. It was what we talked about earlier, that Matthew and Luke independently used Mark and they independently used Q, and they added their own special material, M and L. That essentially is still the governing paradigm today. I, I don't care what theologians say when they try to insist otherwise. They just feel self-conscious about subscribing to a theory from 100 years ago. So you know they try to obscure that fact with statistics and charts and graphs of the synoptic relationships. And they like to use words like post-structuralism, but they're using the two-source hypothesis still. I mean, don't shit a shitter. But B.H. Streeter also believed that there had been a proto-Luke, which was mainly made up of that L material, the unique Lucan material. So there's been a debate about proto-Luke for a long time, and B.H. Streeter was by no means even the first to come up with it, but I think what's missing a lot of times from the arguments about proto-Luke is that we don't necessarily have to assume, like Streeter did, that proto-Luke contained a passion narrative and talked about the death of Jesus and his resurrection and his baptism and birth. So we should perhaps adjust our thinking. If you believe, for example, as I do, that Q existed as an independent document and had no passion narrative, then it's at least theoretically possible that another document about Jesus could exist without a passion narrative. And in fact, when we look at the prologue to Acts of the Apostles, we find something strange. And the great theologian Alfred Loisy also pointed this out. The prologue to Acts of the Apostles describes the Gospel of Luke, that is, volume one of this two-volume set. And this is what it says, quote, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen, end quote. So in your first book, you recorded all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's it, buddy? That's all you covered? I mean, you sure you didn't say anything about his birth or John the Baptist's birth? Didn't painstakingly demonstrate that the birth of Jesus was heralded by an angel and conformed to Old Testament prophecy? Nothing about his shameful arrest? Nothing about his death? You know, nothing about his numerous appearances after death? I mean, all you talked about is what he did and taught? Now, could it be 
that the original Gospel of Luke, the one that the author of Acts picked up and used as his source to create the canonical Gospel of Luke that we know today, could it be that that's all it originally was? A record of what Jesus did and taught, just like I'm saying the proto-Luke was. Now he does add before he was taken up, and it is true that the current Gospel of Luke has a strange story at the very end that says that Jesus was taken up. And he's also taken up in the first chapter of Acts, which is a notorious New Testament problem. In fact, it's one of the great mysteries of the New Testament. Jesus ascends at the end of Luke's Gospel, but then he also ascends in Acts 40 days later. Now in this, first of all, the last chapter of Luke, textually speaking, is a brutal mess. And we'll talk about that when we do a show on the Western text. But I think that this contradiction really comes from the final redactor realizing that there was probably a good chance that the gospel and Acts would get copied separately in the future. And so he had a few passes at trying to bring a sufficient and appropriate end to the gospel so that it could function as a standalone text if need be. But he really couldn't pull it off in a coherent way. I mean, there's a debate over whether Luke and Acts can in fact be by the same author if they conflict on such a crucial point. But no, I mean, I think it was just the same moron, but he was just trying to make the best of a bad situation. I think that when he first wrote the prologue to Acts, he was faithfully describing what his Jesus source was, a record of what Jesus did and taught. That is basically the current gospel of Luke minus Mark and minus the birth narratives and minus his own editorial additions. So the proto-Luke could in fact have been a record of Jesus' preaching and his miracles. And we saw from our opening discussion that there was a purpose in having such an account written, and that was to highlight the role of Jesus as a prophet and teacher whose promise of salvation was universal. And given the huge emphasis placed by the early Christians on Jesus being a teacher, a rabbi in fact, we would expect a document like this that would really emphasize that part of his character. But the idea of a gospel that lacked a narrative of Jesus's death has been a stumbling block for many. You know, it's like they can't conceive of why someone would have written anything about Jesus that didn't also highlight his glorious death or even so much as hint at his resurrection. But it's not impossible. I mean, Gospel of Thomas, Infancy Gospel of Thomas, Dialogue of the Savior. I mean, it seems to me that Proto-Luke was written because its author wanted to expand more on Q and the Q sayings and the Q miracles. He wanted to give them more of a governing ethic and more of a universal outlook and more of a coherent theme. It's an open question as to whether the author of the Proto-Luke would have even accepted or even believed something like the Passion Narrative. It seems like this was a sectarian document that was created in the wake of the Bar Kokhba War by a Syrian Christian who accepted that Jesus had been a figure in history and had been a great teacher and prophet. And this author revered Jesus as God's messenger and servant on earth in just the same way as the contemporary John the Baptist sect revered John and the contemporary James sect revered James. A great prophet of the legendary past from the bygone days before Jerusalem's destruction who heralded the kingdom of God and was rejected by the normative Jews. But this was the proto-Luke. It lacked any material from Mark's gospel from the beginning. And then at some point in about the late 160s, the redactor picks it up. The redactor's true purpose is to write Acts of the Apostles and integrate it with the gospel. We'll talk about that more in the next episode. And like I said, the gospel that he chose to use was this proto-Luke. 
And he began his work by rewording Mark's material and inserting it into Proto-Luke in a kind of a rough chronological order. And this requires us to shift our thinking a bit because we're used to imagining Matthew and Luke as starting out with Mark on their desk and building the framework from there and adding Q and adding their own sources and their own you know, nonsense. But in canonical Luke's case, we rather have to imagine someone who is leavening a pre-existing book with material from Mark. In other words, Mark is the secondary term. Mark is the extra source that he's adding. And if you notice, between Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 9, the redactor is fairly consistent. You know, he adds his material from Mark in an orderly fashion, following it chronologically, but rewording it in his, you know, unique paraphrastic way. But then he suddenly stops. And not only does he stop, but he skips two entire chapters of Mark and doesn't include anything from them. And when he begins following Mark again on a later page, he still has his characters located in the very same place where they were back when he stopped following Mark a few pages earlier. And then for canonical Luke's entire travel section, you know, the middle of the gospel, 10 entire chapters, he hardly includes anything from Mark. Now, very occasionally in the travel section, the redactor will add a little saying from Mark or maybe a little setup for a story that he saw in Mark, but then he'll move on. In fact, the redactor uses Mark in practically the same way that Matthew used Q. He just sprinkles it in. And then the narrative gets to Jerusalem. And then at that point, the redactor begins grudgingly following Mark again. I mean, he makes some edits, some changes. He's, of course, paraphrasing the entire time. And then it ends with the unique resurrection appearances. So Mark is the late addition to the narrative. And as I said, it's difficult for us to conceive of such a thing for two reasons. One, as I said, we imagine the gospel author sitting down to write and having Mark already present to use as a framework. But perhaps more importantly, the narrative of Mark's Jesus is the narrative of Jesus to us. You know, arrives at the Jordan to get baptized, starts his healing and his preaching, uh, the transfiguration happens, get behind me, Satan, you know, he rodeo clowns his way into Jerusalem, gets arrested. He has the, I, I guess you could call it a trial. And then he's executed on the cross. So it goes. But we find in the case of canonical Luke that the substance of that narrative is being added to an already existing body of sayings and miracles. And it's being treated as a secondary, almost an optional source. And in fact, the redactor of canonical Luke almost seems like he's blowing through the Mark material, almost like he's impatient with it, like, all right, let's get these stories out of the way. Now, I mentioned that Luke doesn't have any of the material found in two whole chapters of Mark, and that includes things like Jesus walking on water, um, the Pharisee hand-washing story, you know, where his moral was that everybody poops, uh, the feeding of the 4,000, which is basically a duplicate of the feeding of the 5,000, just quickly on the feeding of the 4,000, you know, it kind of reminds me of that well-known thing where drunk guys will shout free bird at the band that's playing in the bar. You know, Jesus was probably plagued with all kinds of groupies who wanted him to always perform some of his greatest hits again and again. And so, you know, they follow him and shout out, you know, instead of free bird, they'd shout out like miraculous feeding, you know, and then, and then he does the miraculous feeding of the 4,000, you know, just to get him off his back. Um, two healings are also omitted by canonical Luke from this section and also the discussion about the leaven of the Pharisees. 
Now, some have said in the past that Luke was working off of a copy of Mark's gospel that was basically missing a page. Like, that's why he stopped following Mark here only to pick it up again later. Here's what I think. I don't think that's true. I think that the redactor started very dutifully inserting pieces of Mark into his story and he was going in order, but then at one point he said, like, God damn, how much more of this shit is there? You know, and he pages ahead in Mark and he notices like how much is still left to paraphrase and copy into his Luke text. And he's like, holy shit, I could probably afford to skip some of this. And then he's like, all right, let's, let's pick it back up again to that damn transfiguration. I mean, scribal fatigue could be. If you take away every word in Luke's gospel that comes ultimately from Mark, you find that the Jesus who's left standing has little to nothing in common with Mark's Jesus. He is rather what we could call a more enlightened version of the Q Jesus, and one who's much more conscious of his prophetic role, one who's much more conscious of his universal commission. You know, a good example would be the one from our opening reading. Proto-Luke had a whole episode about Jesus explaining his mission. It was carefully thought out. There was foreshadowing, like we said. There was, there was a theme. I mean, we know Jesus' motivation. He seems to be dead set on spreading his message to the whole world to the Gentile world. And in the midst of all that, the redactor plops in this clumsy statement from Mark about how a prophet is never respected in his hometown. And it seems parochial. And we see here very clearly that Mark's Jesus and his character traits are a late intrusion into this narrative. You know, and the key thing to keep in mind is that that narrative, that proto-Luke narrative is already late. I mean, it begins with an anachronism in the prophet's reading, like we said, but more importantly, in proto-Luke's world, Judaism is a completely separate entity from Christianity, full stop. It's not even a question of Christianity is the real Judaism, like we saw in Matthew, or we're too clueless to recognize that we aren't Jews anymore, like we saw in Mark. No, those issues have been superseded by now, and they've been superseded even in the earliest layer of Luke before the redactor has even done any of his work. And for this, we're looking at a time period of the 130s, 140s at least. Now, before moving on, I should answer some possible objections to this, this idea that the Gospel of Luke had two layers of editing. And now the first one would be, didn't Marcion have an early version of Luke? And we'll talk about that shortly when we discuss the first evidence for this Gospel. But another objection would be that no matter where you look in the Gospel of Luke or in Acts of the Apostles, you find characteristic words and emphases that does make it seem as if the entire two-volume work from beginning to end appears to come from one single author. And I actually agree. But there's one issue. Those characteristic Lucan words and phrases and ideas also occur in the parts of the Gospel that he clearly took from Mark. And as we'll talk about extensively in the Acts series, the redactor that we're discussing, this was a highly skilled editor. And we spoke already in episode seven about how Acts of the Apostles clearly has written sources behind it. I don't even think that that can be disputed. And yet we see how seamlessly they were stitched together by this redactor. Well, we get to actually see his work firsthand with his treatment of Mark. If the Gospel of Mark did not survive into modern times and all we had was the Gospel of Luke, there would be no way that anyone could tell that such a document as Mark had ever existed. That's how seamlessly the redactor has done his work. So 
when you do see those characteristic Lucan words and phrases all throughout all the sections of Luke and Acts, like the use of the word semeron to mean daily, or the word atenizo, meaning to stare intently, or katago in the sense of disembarking on shore, or the use of the phrase during those days, or the frequent mention of people doing or saying things in the spirit, or the phrase the word of God, and these have all been seen as calling cards of Luke, they're actually calling cards of the redactor. But I admit that this theory of how Luke was put together is not the most radical thing going. Some might in fact find it to be quite conservative, but I think it's what's supported by the data. Basically, Luke shows evidence of having been altered and messed with. And there are a number of ways that we can try to piece together what happened, but I think that Mark was the missing piece that was added. And I think it was added by the author of Acts because he appears to treat the Mark material the same way he treated the sources for Acts. And we talked a lot about that in episode seven, with one of the sources for Acts being the lost Acts of Paul. I think the redactor chose the proto-Luke to perform this whole operation because it was basically a blank slate. It was just a big block of Jesus's teaching and miracles. And he didn't mind that it had a special emphasis on women and the downtrodden and the poor, and that it had a universal outlook or that it was pro-Gentile. In fact, those themes fit in very well with his own major theme, which was the past and future history of salvation and of the church. One thing we really need to highlight about Luke is the so-called minor agreements with Matthew. If you're going by the theory that Matthew and Luke used Mark and Q independently, you quickly run into an issue, which is that Luke matches Matthew in some passages where, by rights, it shouldn't, because these passages where they agree occur in material that they're supposed to be using independently of each other. Now, by far the most famous example is when Jesus is being interrogated by the high priest. This is something that Luke and Matthew were supposed to be taking from Mark independently. You know, Mark says he was beaten with fists and they say to him, prophesy. But in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, they beat him and they say, prophesy, who's the one who hit you? And there are many instances like this. In Matthew and Luke, the woman touches the fringe of his cloak. In Mark, she merely touches his cloak. They were both supposed to be getting this story independently from Mark. How did they agree that she touched the fringe? You know, in Mark, Peter runs away weeping. In Matthew and Luke, he runs away weeping bitterly. How did they both know he was weeping bitterly when their source only said he was weeping and they were supposed to have no contact with each other? Mark says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? Matthew and Luke say, Unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? These are the minor agreements, and there are many more. Matthew and Luke have no business sharing these things in common if we're going off the conventional two-source theory. Just as an aside, it's always sad to see people trying to explain these minor agreements away as edits and changes that Matthew and Luke would both have made on their own independently. You know, to believe that, you have to resort to special pleading about 200 times in a row. But my own theory explains the minor agreements this way. The redactor of Luke knew Matthew. And Robert M. Price shared something interesting. The Gospel of Matthew is divided into five major blocks, and at the end of each of them, there's a kind of a summary statement to close it out, like, when Jesus had finished his preaching, he went out to go have a cigarette. Then he was on his way. Acts of the Apostles is also divided into five major blocks, and at the end of each of them, there's a summary statement to close it out, just like in Matthew. 
It's clear that the author of Acts had read Matthew and he liked this literary technique and he used it in Acts. And this was the same person who redacted the Gospel of Luke, as we've been saying. And so it's not a surprise that he took advantage of his knowledge of Matthew to harmonize the text of Luke to Matthew in a few places. But notice overall how sparse these minor agreements are. When you look at later scribes, like from later centuries, they're constantly trying to harmonize the Gospels. But here, when canonical Luke is first being put together, you know, we get like a decent handful of harmonizations to Matthew, but not like a whole smorgasbord of them. You know, it, it suggests that while the redactor of Luke knew the text of Matthew pretty well, he didn't know it so incredibly well to the point where he was able to create like a constant feedback loop between Matthew and Luke. Now to shift perspective for a minute, it's been argued here and there that Luke's gospel as a whole knew and used Matthew, but I think that's highly unlikely. You know, canonical Luke is a different story. The redactor of Luke knew Matthew, but as we said, he was only really able to make a couple of spot changes here and there to conform to it. Now, what about the possibility of Matthew using Luke and coming after Luke? Now, we should quickly talk about that. I saw a comment from someone recently who was dead sure that Matthew used Luke. This guy was never more sure of anything. I mean, I don't think so, because it doesn't seem likely to me that if Matthew came after Luke, Matthew would understand Jesus's wineskins metaphor where Luke didn't. Matthew has an immediate issue with the Pharisees, but Luke doesn't. You know, Luke is calling Jesus the Lord left and right, whereas Matthew isn't. Luke believes in something called the times of the Gentiles, and, and Matthew apparently doesn't. Uh, Luke has a long historical view, and he's, he's trying to reorient the new reality of a long-term Christian church. Christianity is a going concern, and Matthew isn't. His point of view is much more parochial. But I guess anything's possible because, you know, none of these idiots bothered to explain what they were doing when they originally wrote these things. But there's not a question to me that canonical Luke is the very latest of the four Gospels. And we'll get into much more detail on that in this series. Uh, I was going to talk a little bit about Q, but I think we'll have to save it for another time. I know there are some who may be upset at the idea of me believing that there was a Q source, but we really can't go too much into depth on Q in this mini-series. But what else can we say about the Gospel of Luke and its structure? I mean, canonical Luke. We're in a unique world here in canonical Luke. We're in the middle of time, as the theologian Hans Konzelman said. Now, this is a world where God especially likes to appear on mountains. If you want to see God, just take a trip up the mountain and pray or invoke, as the word should actually be translated. This is a world in which women, especially widows, deserve special respect and even a kind of tenderness. You know, it's a world where money and the lack of it is an obsession. The fact that there are poor people in the world is a seriously grave injustice, almost on par with the suffering that's caused by disease and death. There's a keen focus on the downtrodden in Luke's gospel. It's a note that the author never fails to strike. You know, Jesus walks around saying things like, 99% of the people of Judea own only 1% of the wealth of Judea. Jesus said in the other synoptic gospels that you had to give up all possessions to follow him, but Luke's Jesus actually means it. Won't even let you carry a damn stick on your missionary travels. But most importantly, this is a world where the intra-sectarian conflict with Judaism is in the distant past. It's no longer so immediate as it was in Mark and Matthew, and that's significant. You know, because even in those gospels, as we saw, Jesus was found to actually be tangling with the proto-rabbis of the, the time of Akiva, 
And here in Luke's gospel, that entire conflict is a dead letter. It no longer matters. The nascent Christian religion is now looking to ingratiate itself with the Roman state. And there seems to hardly be any fear that the stigma of the rebellious Jews will rub off on the Christians in the eyes of the Romans. The original Gospel of Luke, the Proto-Luke, was kind of like a JRPG. It was like Dragon Quest. Jesus gets into random encounters. You know, there's that phrase from video game culture, RN Jesus, that you may have heard. It comes from the random number generator, the RNG, that's part of the underlying mechanics of many games, such that, you know, you might say before beginning a Bart's Nightmare level that you're praying to RN Jesus. And what that means is that you hope that the game won't be too harsh in this playthrough. Good luck, because that game is hard as shit. Well, Proto-Luke basically was RN Jesus, literally. You know, Jesus encounters a Pharisee. He encounters a widow. You know, he encounters a green slime. But the redactor of canonical Luke has transformed that into something else. Into a book that's now structured in such a way as to give it a historical and universalizing outlook. For canonical Luke, Christianity is a fully self-conscious sect that's now getting a sense of its own place in history and needs that spelled out in writing, like the theologian Raymond Brown said. Jesus needs to become an actor in history, and he needs to be brought even further down to earth than he was in Mark's gospel and even in Q. Jesus here, he, he more so resembles the Hellenistic pagan martyrs who bear with adversity out of a sense of duty. Now, it's well known that canonical Luke has a kind of a schematic. It has to do with Satan's role in the story. Satan leaves Jesus after the temptation to wait for an opportune time. And in the whole middle section, Jesus is depicted as routing the demons left and right until Satan comes back and he enters Judas towards the end. And that's what Hans Konzelman talked about. But in reality, this schematic is actually quite sloppy. It looks like it was imposed artificially on the gospel by the redactor. But to sum up canonical Luke, we can talk about the redactor's favorite word, because the redactor of Luke has a favorite word, just like all the gospel authors have a favorite word, like Mark's favorite word is immediately. The redactor's favorite word is all. It shows up all over this gospel and all over Acts, and it shows up in the Mark material, the Q material, and the Luke special material. What Jesus said in the other gospels only to a few people if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, is now represented in canonical Luke as being said to all, a word that occurs dozens and dozens of times in Luke and Acts. And not only that, but he modifies this statement even further. Not only are all now supposed to take up the cross, but they are to do so daily. This is almost a liturgical formula, and it appears to be very late. And so in canonical Luke, like we said, Christianity is now a fully self-conscious sect, a fully self-conscious religion with a sense of its place in history. And this sense of history far transcends the particularism of those earlier gospels. In other words, this is as late as it gets. But we should also talk briefly about some of the other sources that are used by the compiler, the redactor of Luke's gospel. Of course, we already know about Mark and Q and the use of sources in and of itself is always an immediate marker of a late date. We can look at things, though, like the first two chapters of canonical Luke, the birth narrative. First of all, Luke chapter 1 and 2, where it talks about the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, the census, the announcement to the shepherds, the presentation of Jesus in the temple, the him as a 12-year-old boy, you know, didn't you know that I'd be in the things of my father? 
Not only were these two chapters originally separate from Luke, meaning that they come from outside sources, but they are actually composite even within themselves. But they were added to the gospel by the redactor, and their purpose seems to have been twofold. The first purpose was to tie the early history of Jesus to the early history of John the Baptist. And I've remarked before that this kind of thing is similar to what the Western allies were up to after World War II with things like the European economic community, you know, to marry the economies of France and Germany, you know, to such an extent that it'd be difficult for them to ever go to war again, you know, because by that point, the conflicts between Germany and France had led to a major war three times, actually almost four times with the Agadir crisis and maybe even like the Dreyfus affair. You know, at that point, it's like, that's enough. But in the time of the redactor of Luke, the second century followers of John the Baptist are still in conflict with the early Christians. So the response by the redactor, whose interest seems to be in these sects finding common ground, is to unify the early histories of Jesus and John. You know, one of the proofs that this birth narrative was originally extraneous to the main body of the gospel is that none of the relevant characters in the body of Luke's gospel seem to remember these events when we meet with them again later in the story. Another thing is like when you look at something like Acts chapter 10, the narrative seems to presuppose that everything that's significant to know about Jesus began when he appeared at the Jordan River when John was there preaching and baptizing. But we see from Luke 1 and 2 that these two figures were in fact intimately connected from birth. And that's a sign that these were added later. You know, Luke 1 and 2 in and of themselves, they seem to come from a hodgepodge of different sources including Mandean hymns, as St. Gordy pointed out. Uh, there are points of contact with the Dead Sea Scrolls, like 4Q246. Uh, there's a lot of material that's derived from 1 Samuel. But the second major purpose of Luke 1 and 2 is to provide a kind of counterweight to the darkness and gloom of Matthew's infancy narrative. Meaning that at the time that the first two chapters of Luke were added, the redactor was aware of Matthew, like we talked about. As I said, the redactor of Luke knows Matthew. I mean, it helped him in writing Acts and structuring it in the way that he did, and it helped him in adding the minor agreements to Luke, and it helps him now when he's editing and adding this birth story. The theologian Raymond Brown pointed out that there are 12 points of contact between Luke's birth narrative and Matthew's birth narrative, and these include things like the phrase, in the days of Herod, that Luke doesn't use anywhere else. You know, things like, you will call his name so-and-so, and of course, it would be superfluous to talk about the other similarities, the appearance of the angel, the trek to another town, the revelation of the infant Jesus to a third party. Now, the critical scholar Richard Carrier is a big believer in the idea that Luke followed and used Matthew, like Luke had Matthew to him, full stop. And he says that some things in Luke seem like they are responding to Matthew, but actually most of his arguments seem to come from this birth narrative. Because he has a point, I mean, Luke's birth narrative is trying to portray the birth and infancy of Jesus as something that happened in an ideal world. It's a golden age where everyone walks around speaking in Old Testament passages. And, and there wasn't any of the panic and the dismay that we see in Matthew's birth narrative, like a furtive flight into Egypt and Archelaus and Herod tracking them down. And Herod massacres the infants, you know, it just seems seedy. Luke's birth narrative is in an idyllic setting where everyone obediently follows God's plan. I mean, at least the parents of Jesus do. Matthew's birth narrative seems so dark because it's a kind of a Haggadah that's based on second century legends about Moses. And the early history of Moses is very dark, but out of necessity. 
because he's born in Egypt where the Israelites are imprisoned and he eventually has to get them out. And Matthew constructs parallels between that story and Jesus. Well, the redactor of Luke is not so much interested in that. He casts the early days of Jesus more in the vein of Samuel and others. He, he takes a more idealistic view. And the redactor of canonical Luke, who edited and added Luke 1 and 2, seems to be trying his best not to outright conflict with Matthew's birth narrative. And we even see the results of that today with how well he did his work with Christian apologists insisting that the two narratives can be harmonized. So I think that Richard Carrier is correct to see Luke 1 and 2 as a response to Matthew 1 and 2. But in my view, it's rather that the redactor of Luke is the one doing the responding. By the way, whoever edited and added this birth narrative was also aware of the Gospel of John because in this birth narrative, he says poetically that a sword will pierce Mary's side. And nowhere but in John's Gospel does she witness Jesus's crucifixion where, of course, his side is pierced. It's a sign of a late date. Also, this material of the birth narrative is completely clueless about Judaism. I mean, it implies that Joseph and Jesus need to be purified after the birth. I mean, this is not part of Jewish custom. Uh, th there's no Jewish custom that says that you have to present your firstborn son in the temple. Uh, it says that the prophetess Anna lives in the temple. No, she didn't. People could not just live there. It wasn't a hostel. We really have to look someday at the relationship between this birth narrative material in Luke and the Protevangelium of James. Because the author of that is just as lost when it comes to Jewish customs as this fool is who wrote the birth narrative. You know, in the, in the Protevangelium of James, as I said in the fourth bonus show, the author seems to be operating under the delusion that the, the Jewish temple hosted temple virgins, like a pagan temple. And he also seems to think that you can be excommunicated from Judaism for being childless. You know, all this stuff, all this material, all these mistakes, these show that whoever wrote them was far removed, not only from the first century in the time of the Jerusalem temple, and was just kind of filtering information from the Jewish Bible through his own adult brain, but the author is also very far removed from Judaism generally. Judaism and Christianity have been separate for a long time when these things were written. And Judaism is understood by the author to be something that the ancient Christians were a part of back in the legendary past. And that is also the perspective of the redactor of Luke, who wrote Acts of the Apostles and unified the proto-Luke with Mark and with Acts and added these birth stories. And we can talk briefly about the language of Luke's gospel because it ties in somewhat with the date. I used to think that the strongest argument for an early date for the gospels could be that someone could argue that they are perhaps written in a style of Greek that aligns more to the first century than the second. I mean, that's not necessarily true, but it's an argument that apologists have made. I mean, if anything, the opposite is true in the case of Luke, because Luke and Acts share a lot of vocabulary in common with the late second century Christian theologians. But as I studied this issue more, uh, I became aware that the early style argument really wouldn't work anyway, because the authors of the gospels are deliberately archaizing their style. And we definitely see that throughout the gospel of Luke. 90% of the vocabulary comes from the Septuagint, and the book's style and language appears to most closely parallel the books of the Maccabees, especially second Maccabees. So when you see these linguistic artifacts, you know, what are called Aramaism, Semitisms, Septuagintisms, these are markers of an author deliberately affecting a certain style and someone who clearly knew what they were doing and what they were doing was self-consciously writing scripture. 
Now, lastly, there are some echoes of another possible source behind the Gospel of Luke. Luke seems to be obsessed with this girl, Joanna, who is said to be the wife of Herod's steward. In fact, there may have been a source that Luke had access to that covered the reign of Herod Antipas and those in his court. The radical critic Robert M. Price said that the material about Joanna in Luke's gospel looks like it was taken from something similar to the late second century Acts that had to do with women converting to Christianity and becoming chaste. There are a number of these Acts novels that we still possess, and they're striking because to the Christian sects who created them, sexuality and chastity seem to be their primary obsession. Like, chastity is the signifier of someone being a Christian to them, especially a woman. It's like everything else is secondary. And Price believes that the Joanna material in Luke's gospel came from such a source. I mean, it's possible, and if true, it would be a major sign of a late date. You know, we talked in episode nine about how this debate over chastity consumed the Christians of the 160s, the 170s. Now, there was a sect, the Encratites, who originated in that period, and they made chastity their central issue. You know, it is possible that the redactor of Luke also had access to some kind of a Herod source. Uh, for one thing, Luke corrects Mark and Matthew's error about whose wife Herod Antipas stole. Matthew and Mark say that it was Philip, when actually it was another man named Herod. Actually, Luke doesn't so much correct Matthew and Mark's error as cover it up, Watergate style, by using the passive voice. But all this to say, we have to consider the possibility that there are other lost sources behind the final product of Luke's gospel. When we come back, we'll look at the earliest and latest possible dates for the gospel of Luke. Back after this. We now have to find our terminus dates, the earliest and latest possible dates that Luke's gospel could have been written. Now, before we begin that process, it's going to be helpful to us to talk about where else in the New Testament the name Luke occurs outside of the title of this gospel. It occurs three times. At the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, where we hear that Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. In the letter to Philemon, we hear of a number of people who greet the recipient, one of whom is Luke. Lastly, at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says that only Luke is with me. Just briefly, I'll say that in the mainstream, the Pauline authorship of 2 Timothy is mostly questioned. The Pauline authorship of Colossians is frequently questioned. And the Pauline authorship of Philemon is usually not questioned. Luke is a Roman name, that is, it comes from Latin. 
Lucas in Greek is just a shortened form of an originally Latin name, most likely Lucius. It's similar to the Greek name Silas being used for the Latin Silvanus. Now that kind of thing in and of itself can't really tell us much about authorship, but it was important to make note of these instances where the name Luke appears in other New Testament books because we find that from the beginning, when the Gospel of Luke is first acknowledged by Christian writers, which is very late, they all seem to know that Luke's Gospel and Acts were written by this same Luke who shows up in Paul's letters. And, as if I even had to tell you, the first person to ever mention and cite the Gospel of Luke by name is brother of the show, doctor of the show, Ira Frickinaeus, writing around 190 AD. We'll go easy on Irenaeus today. It's a, it's, it's a big day for him. Now, I've been talking about the metaphor that Irenaeus has been using about the Gospels. He says that they are represented by the four heavenly creatures in the vision from the book of Revelation. A lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. And he says that Luke is like the calf because Luke's gospel begins in the temple where John the Baptist's father is a priest. And the calf is uh, an animal that gets sacrificed, you know, in the, in the temple. <sighs> this Irenaeus, man. But like I said, I shouldn't be too hard on him. Good metaphor, buddy. Luke is one of the four canonical gospels, according to him, and it's represented by a calf. He should have just gone in order, like Matthew is the lion, Mark is the calf, Luke is the man, and John is the eagle. Like, that's what he probably should have said. Like, I'm sure if you really think about it, you could come up with some ways to justify that arrangement as well. But what this metaphor really shows is that the theologians of the late 2nd century are calling up as much symbology as they can to justify the validity of the New Testament and the books contained within it. Because remember, in Irenaeus' time, the New Testament was only a fairly recent compilation. But Irenaeus has the complete Gospel of Luke here in the year 190. Uh, he has the birth narrative, the Luke special material, Western text, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This guy has canonical Luke, no question. Something interesting that he says about it. He says that Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus up to 72 generations, and this is significant. I mean, 72 was an important number in Jewish numerology in the second century. Then you actually read the Gospel of Luke and you find out that there's actually 77 generations between Jesus and God. And it's like, nice try, Irenaeus. I mean, got to double check these things before they go to print, buddy. But Irenaeus knows Luke to be the companion of Paul. And he also knows him to be the author of Acts of the Apostles. Now, Acts of the Apostles has something called the we passages. That is, parts of it, small parts of it, are written in the first person plural. And a big part of Irenaeus' case that the Gospels are apostolic is the fact that Luke was an eyewitness to Paul and that these we passages were written by Luke. In fact, whenever Irenaeus talks about Acts of the Apostles, he'll say things like, as Luke said, and things like that. So to him, Luke and Acts are the work of the same author. And this author, he identifies as the companion of Paul who's mentioned in Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy. You know, Irenaeus proudly cites all three of those mentions of Luke as proof that this was a companion of Paul. And in fact, he says something that's of primary importance in this connection, and we'll get much deeper into this next time when we discuss the title. 
He says that Luke's gospel is actually to be considered Paul's gospel in all but name. He says, quote, Luke, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him, meaning Paul. So keep that under your hat for now. But how soon before Irenaeus was Luke's gospel written? There are some clues that he gives that suggest that Luke's gospel has been around for a bit by his time. Specifically, he says that two heretical groups have gotten their hands on Luke and either altered it or made ridiculous arguments based on it. The first group is the sect led by Valentinus, who, as far as we know, had died by Irenaeus' time. He says that Valentinus used the Gospel of Luke to make some silly theological arguments. For example, Valentinus believed in powerful beings called aeons, who are kind of like the Valar from the Tolkien universe rather than the aeons from Final Fantasy X. And he says that there are 30 aeons in total, but there were 12 major ones. And Valentinus gives us proof of this, the fact that Luke's Gospel says that Jesus began his career when he was about 30 years old. That refers to the 30 aeons. And Jesus was said to be 12 years old when he was found by his parents in the temple. And that symbolizes the 12 principal aeons. And these two pieces of information with these numbers can only be found in the Gospel of Luke. So this implies that someone out there was writing commentaries on Luke prior to Irenaeus. And the second group that he mentioned as commenting on Luke is the sect led by Marcion. He says that Marcion mutilated the Gospel of Luke and Paul's epistles, removed passages from them. He says that five times. Now, we're going to talk about Marcion in a minute, but I want to make something very clear about these church fathers who always keep saying that Valentinus or Marcion did or said this or that. These people don't know anything, unless they're getting it from books or unless someone slaps them across the face with it. And Irenaeus does have firsthand knowledge or appears to have firsthand knowledge of one sect, which is the Marcosians, and he doesn't shut the hell up about them, and he tells us just about everything they do and say. But when it comes to Marcion, the Ebionites, the Cainites, and so on, the Simonians, he just repeats the same few catchphrases about them. He does not have firsthand knowledge of them. And it's clear that he's getting all his information about them from another book. Same thing with Valentinus. He's getting all his information about Valentinus from books, as he himself says. And he delves very deeply into the Valentinian cosmogony and cosmology, but that's because he was using a very detailed book about it, and we can see that. He literally says things like, uh, next they talk about this, and in the next line they talk about this. And, and Hippolytus, someone after him, will do the exact same thing. He'll sometimes give very detailed information about a sect, and in those cases, it's clear that he's following a detailed book. Other times, he won't give as much information, and in those cases, it's clear that he's following something that some previous Christian said or summarized about the sect. All this to say, if Irenaeus is reading a book that's telling him Valentinus had all these opinions about Luke's gospel, then it does not necessarily mean that Valentinus himself actually had those opinions and was aware of Luke's gospel. What it actually means is that the commentary that he's reading came from the Valentinians, i.e. the second or third generation of heretics after Valentinus. And the same thing applies to Marcion. The church fathers will say things like, Marcion wrote this or that, but if you take the time to corral and collect all those statements together, you find that they invariably conflict in their style, their doctrine, and their theology. 
So it could be that when Irenaeus says that Valentinus had somewhat to say about the Gospel of Luke, that he's really reading what some other later Valentinian's opinions were about the Gospel of Luke. Either that or that later Valentinian was writing under the name of Valentinus, or the Christian author is projecting that later Valentinian's views back onto Valentinus. So Valentinus may have operated around the 140s and the 150s, as I believe, Marcion probably from the 130s to the 150s. But just because a Christian author 40 or 50 years later saying that these guys commented on or changed one of the Gospels does not mean that they actually did so, especially because the church writer never, ever offers proof that this was the case. Like Irenaeus never says, hey, here's a book by Valentinus. It's called Summer Harvest, and here's how I know it's actually by Valentinus and not one of his second or third generation droogies. Actually, the fact that the church writers don't say things like that indicates that they know that they're working off of a secondary source. But this was Irenaeus, Dr. Irenaeus. He knows canonical Luke here in the 190s, and it may have existed before his time. How long before his time is what we have to try to answer. Before moving on, I have to share the most crucial thing that Irenaeus says about the Gospel of Luke. He says, quote, If anyone sets Luke aside as someone who didn't know the truth, he will, by doing so, manifestly reject the Gospel of which he claims to be a disciple. End quote. What he's saying there is if you reject the Gospel of Luke, you're rejecting some key truths about Jesus and your picture of Jesus is going to be incomplete. Now, why would he say this? Because he doesn't say that the heretics are the ones who rejected. In fact, he says the opposite. He says the heretics are actually working with Luke. They're using it to try to demonstrate their own mystical theological theories. What his statement actually implies is that some Orthodox Christians of his time were rejecting it. Now, why would this be? Could it be that Luke, having been the latest of the canonical gospels to be compiled, was maybe seen by some contemporary Christians as a novelty, as perhaps not being trustworthy? Something to consider, to think about as we go forward. But we move to Hippolytus now. He's a Christian author, theologian, who also wrote against heresies like Irenaeus did, and he wrote from about 210 to 220. We bring him up because he also talks about past heretics writing commentaries about Luke. He mentions both Valentinus and Basilides as doing this. And in the books from where he's getting this information, there indeed seem to be some comments on Luke's gospel, including the Lucan birth narrative. The point that I want to make in all this is that, again, it is not required to assume that Basilides, in about 155 AD, wrote a commentary on Luke's gospel, merely because Hippolytus in the year 220 says so. In fact, here in the case of Hippolytus, it seems like what he is reading is some kind of Basilidian philosophical text that someone has added to and provided so-called proofs of how the contents of this philosophical tract match up with Luke's gospel and Paul's letters and so on. Because here's what I think happened. Marcion, Valentinus, and Basilides all did their work around the middle of the second century. We know that from authors like Justin and Hegesippus. They outright assume in their time that there is such a thing as a Marcionite and a Valentinian and a Basilidian sect. But at that point, there was no New Testament collection yet. And unless you were well-connected to Orthodox circles at that time, like Justin was, like the author of 1 Peter was, 
like the author of the pastoral letters was, you didn't necessarily have access to the Gospels in the forms in which they existed at the time. So that means that Marcion, Valentinus, and Basilides did not necessarily possess any of the New Testament texts. You know, it is very possible that Marcion possessed some form of Paul's letters, but that's a special case. None of these guys had the Gospels, however, and certainly none of them had the Gospel of Luke. They did, however, write theological treatises, which were Gnostic speculation for the most part. Now, sometime in the 170s, the New Testament collection debuted, and the Orthodox Catholic Church began claiming that this compendium of texts was the true indicator of whether a church or whether a prophet or whether a clergyman had the correct, accepted beliefs. You had to embrace the New Testament. And the later generations of Valentinians, of Marcionites, of Basilidians, some of them decided to play ball. And they said, okay, we'll accept the New Testament because otherwise we're effectively sidelined in this debate. We'll find ourselves showing up in some burg to preach our version of the faith to the local Christians and they'll say, yeah, you know, that sounds great, but do you accept the New Testament? And when we say no, they're just going to say, then get the hell out of here. So we have to embrace these books in some sense. So why don't we do that on our own terms? Why don't we imbue them with a mystical sense? Why don't we treat them as if they're text from the Hermetic Corpus or the Sibyllines or the frickin' Hestaspes Oracle? When the book says that Jesus was 12 years old when his parents found him in the temple, that didn't really happen, according to us. But what we might say is that what the author really meant was that there were 12 primary aeons and that that was the true purpose of the story. He's trying to mystically convey a spiritual truth. And we can actually do that for the whole gospel and for all four canonical gospels if we want. And, and that's actually what we're seeing in these notices by Irenaeus and Hippolytus when they say that these ancient heretics had ought to say about Luke's gospel. These were really later members of those schools, making an effort to harmonize their beliefs to the New Testament collection. The New Testament collection was not out yet at the time when the ancient heretics were actually teaching. So in conclusion, we need not assume that these heretics of the mid-2nd century possessed the gospel of Luke. These church authors are most likely referring to later commentaries by later followers of these guys who were in fact reacting to the debut of the first New Testament. But let's look for other mentions of Luke in the late second century. What about the pastoral letters? These are three letters that appear under the name of Paul. They are extraordinarily late on internal evidence alone. But at one point in 1 Timothy, a line from Luke's gospel is quoted by the pseudonymous author as scripture. Now, it's been pointed out that the pastoral letters actually share a lot of vocabulary and expressions in common with Luke and Acts, which has led some people to suppose that these letters and Luke and Acts were actually written by the same author. Now, that's a possibility, but because we don't know for sure when the pastoral letters were written or who wrote them, we can't really draw too much of an inference about Luke's date from them. What we can observe is that 1 Timothy, at least, appears to have some knowledge of Luke, and I put these letters around 170, and they were part of the program of the Catholic Church to absorb the Pauline Church. We can also find echoes of Luke's gospel in the Gospel of John. Now, the relationship between Luke and John actually works in two directions, under my hypothesis. The final version of Luke by the redactor had knowledge of John's gospel, and some of the phrasing in canonical Luke reflects that. And for that, you can look at small examples like the fact that in Luke and John, when Jesus is baptized, the passive voice is used. 
The John the Baptist sect appears to be much more developed in Luke and John and seems like a much greater threat to the authors than it does in Matthew and Luke. Another thing, Luke's story of the call of Peter as a disciple with a miraculous catch of fish, that appears to have been written by someone who had knowledge of John's gospel. Uh, Judas being possessed by the devil or by a demon. Uh, the fact that only Luke and John refer to Passover as the feast of the Passover. You know, things like that show that canonical Luke knew the Gospel of John. But there was an earlier point of contact between Luke and John. Specifically, John's Gospel was aware of Proto-Luke. Proto-Luke shares certain traits with John that show up in no other canonical Gospel. There's the presence of characters like Mary and Martha and stories involving them, as well as Lazarus. There's a story in both Gospels about a woman anointing the feet of Jesus using her hair. There's an outright assumption in both Gospels that Jesus had links to Samaria and had interactions with Samaritans. And in Proto-Luke, he journeyed near or through Samaria and had some adventures there with the locals. Of course, there's the Good Samaritan parable. And of course, in John's Gospel, we've discussed the passage many times where he does the, the verbal judo with a Samaritan woman at Suhar. In both the Gospel of John and in Proto-Luke, Jesus heals a member of a Roman centurion's entourage. In both the Gospel of John and in Proto-Luke, Jesus gets upset with the crowd and essentially accuses them only of wanting to see magic tricks. He said that in Proto-Luke in the passage from our opening reading, and he says it in John when he says, You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Nothing like this in the other two Gospels. Now, I will eventually make the case that John's gospel appeared in around the middle of the second century, and it, like the gospel of Luke, went through an editing process. But John appears to draw from an earlier version of Luke, and specifically, he's drawing only from material that's within the proto-Luke. And, and this has been well known for some time, that John's gospel has this affinity with what we can call Luke's special material. And no one has ever really figured it out. What they usually say is that John and Luke had access to the, the same body of traditions. Yeah, you know, There seems to have been a lot of bodies of tradition that were just kind of floating around the first century Mediterranean, apparently. But by now, you know my view of the early Christian text. More often than not, they're books reacting to other books. What about other early mentions of Luke? We can talk about something that I don't think we've mentioned on Born in the Second Century before, the Canon of Muratori. It's a strange list of the New Testament writings that was found in the 1700s by Lodovico Muratori in a monastery. Just as an aside, I, I love how so many books are found in monasteries by explorers. You know, it's like they were never actually technically lost. I mean, they were in the monk's library the whole time. You know, would these monks mind getting off their ass for a change and maybe like sharing or releasing some of this stuff? Yes, I get that they really have no reason to ever go into the stacks and the, the, the books just kind of sit there collecting dust for 2,000 years, but come on. But the canon of Muratori, it, it's written in Latin by someone who seems like they only took one lesson of Latin in Rosetta Stone. Like they did like the introductory lesson and were like, I got this. And then they attempted to make a list of what they considered canonical New Testament books. Here's what it says about Luke. The third gospel book, that according to Luke. This physician Luke, after Christ's ascension, since Paul had taken him with him as an expert in the way, composed it in his own name, according to his thinking. 
But neither did he himself see the Lord in the flesh, and therefore, as he was able to ascertain it, so he begins to tell the story of the birth from John. End quote. By John, he means John the Baptist. And he also says that the author of Luke is the author of Acts. Now, there's a long-running dispute over the date of this thing. Now, some language in it indicates that the writer is placing himself in about the 150s because he says that the Shepherd of Hermas was written recently by the brother of Pius, the Bishop of Rome. So some tend to date this thing in the late second century on that internal evidence. Others put it as late as the fourth century or later. And I don't want to spoil the upcoming series on it, but this author, whoever he is, has a New Testament with the Gospels in canonical order, and they're followed by Paul's epistles. So some New Testament collection had to have existed before this was written, and that suggests a date later than the mid-second century. Now, he also says that the pastoral letters are held sacred to the glory of the Catholic Church for the ordering of ecclesiastical discipline, which seems straight out of the fourth century. Uh, he's speaking that Catholic ease that we recognize from the time of Nicaea. He assumes that churches are led by bishops. That's something we don't start to see until very late in the second century. He also knows that there are extra-canonical books of Acts, and he rejects all of them. And many of those books we know to have been written after 150. Even mainstream theologians put them there. So this is a very mysterious text, and there's a lot more to say about it. But for now, we can say that because half the theologians put this thing in the mid-100s, and the other half put it way later than that, we can't really rely on it as an early testimony for Luke's gospel. But now we have to talk briefly about Papias. Papias, if you remember, wrote the now lost book where he talked about Matthew and Mark's gospel, among other things. And he said that Mark wrote down Peter's preaching, but in no particular order. And Matthew wrote the Lord's sayings and everyone else translated them. So Papias is batting a thousand already, basically, but it is not known whether Papias said anything about Luke. Now, there are two possible reasons why so many later Christian authors quoted what Papias said about the origins of Matthew and Mark, but they never ever quoted what he said about the origins of Luke and John. Either Papias never said anything about their origins, or what he said about their origins was so horrendous that every later author kept silent about it. That second possibility is my belief. I'll talk in the John series about how Papias likely said that he himself wrote the Gospel of John through a kind of a spiritual communion with that apostle beyond the grave. And that's not something I'm coming up with out of whole cloth. That's something that's supported by evidence. And similarly, I think it's very likely that Papias said something about Luke, but it was so monumentally damaging to the view of the mainstream church, which was that Luke was an ancient gospel, that they never bothered to write it down and repeat it for posterity. You know, and then they resorted to calling Papias stupid, like brother of the show Eusebius literally calls him a moron. You know, it's notable that whenever they record what Papias said about the origins of Matthew and Mark, unlike modern Christians, these ancient commentators never point out that, hey, it's interesting, you know, he only ever talked about Matthew and Mark, you know, didn't mention John or Luke. No, they are strangely silent on whether he did or did not mention John and Luke. So they didn't like what he said. I shared what I think he said about John. What could he have said about Luke? Well, notice what he says about Mark first. He said that it was Peter's preaching and Peter's interpreter wrote it all down, but not in exact order. That reminds me of something. 
What does it remind me of? The prologue to Canonical Luke. Quote, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. I think that Papias, in his now lost book, actually gave it away that Canonical Luke was written in his time. That is the 160s, possibly 170s. Because there's long been a question of why he feels the need to point out that Mark's gospel wasn't written in order. You know, because it's information that's left hanging in all the citations of Papias that have been preserved. It seems to me that what he was going to say was that Mark's gospel was Peter's preaching written out of order. Matthew's gospel was the sayings of the Lord, and everyone translated it in a different way. But Luke's gospel, though, you ought to check out Luke's gospel, because this was something that a studious Christian in that church two towns over carefully researched because he wanted to get it right, and he set everything down in consecutive order, as he, in fact, says in his prologue that's addressed to my pal Theophilus of Antioch. I mean, it's a possibility. Now, in talking about regular order and consecutive order, Papias and Luke's prologue, they don't use exactly the same terms for this concept in Greek, but we can't ignore this strange underlying concern about order in both documents. And this would also coincidentally explain why Luke's prologue insists that there have been many accounts of Jesus that have been written until his time. It's nonsensical for the first century, but right on time if we're talking about this era of Papias. Mainstream theologians have never convincingly explained why it is that Papias is not said to have discussed the origins of John and Luke, especially if those are supposed to be ancient gospels all the way back from the first century. And for what it's worth, because some people have tried to argue that Papias didn't have access to Luke, didn't know about it, so that's why he didn't bring it up, there's some indication that he did know about it. Because a sixth century Christian named Andrew of Caesarea says that Papias made a comment on Luke, chapter 10, verse 18, the famous line, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And that's the line that John Milton loved so much. Now, it could be that this is a misattribution to Papias by Andrew here, but we can't rule it out. But on paper, at least, Papias is not actually a witness to Luke. Uh, this discussion here has mostly been speculation, but overall, Papias works in our favor because we see that even someone writing at this late date still can't tell us anything about the gospel's existence. So we move on. Now, I just said that Papias could have believed that one of his contemporaries had put together canonical Luke in the late second century. Sounded kind of weird though, right? Well, let's hear from Clement of Alexandria from the turn of the third century. This is a passage from a book by Maximus Confessor in the seventh century. Quote, I also saw the phrase seven heavens in a book by Aristo of Pella. The dialogue of Jason and Papiscus, which Clement of Alexandria, in the sixth book of his outlines, says that St. Luke wrote. End quote. Uh, what? Now, the dialogue of Jason and Papiscus is a lost book, but we know that it was from the mid-second century. I mean, for example, it apparently mentioned the Bar Kokhba War of the 130s. I mean, we do have quotes from the book. And the entire premise of the book was that Christianity and Judaism were two distinct faiths. It was a late text. I mean, it's not unlike Justin Martyr's dialogue. And, and Clement, we no longer have his outlines, but here in what was apparently a citation from them, 
He's saying that the same guy who wrote a book from the middle of the second century was the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. So this is notable, to say the least. And it kind of lines up with what I said about Papias. And it lines up very much with the fact that of all four Gospels in the New Testament, Luke is the least represented until the late second century. There are all these rumblings that we're detecting now that canonical Luke was written very late by what these guys would consider a fifth or sixth generation Christian who was self-consciously putting together a complete and correct gospel that was self-consciously not representing itself as eyewitness testimony. But again, Maximus here could be mistaken in what he read, and of course the outlines of Clement, like I said, have been lost. Uh, we, we do get other conflicting information about Luke and the other fragments of the outlines that we have, like Clement says that Luke and Matthew were written first, for example, before Mark. I, I think in that passage where he said that Luke and Matthew were written first, I actually think he seems to have confused himself and he's just trying to write his way out of it. Clement in the outlines also apparently said that Luke was the one who translated Paul's letter to the Hebrews from Hebrew into Greek, which, uh, I don't know, maybe Clement was doing like a double shift that day or he had the clopin or whatever. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like he was thinking clearly when he wrote that. Now, in the books of Clement that we do possess, I mean, he knows the gospel of Luke and he knows Acts and he says that Acts is written by Luke. So he is a witness to the fact that Luke's gospel existed by the year 200. But these things that he's saying in his lost books, uh, we can't verify them, but they do complicate the picture somewhat. I think you'll agree. There seems to be some weirdness or strangeness, like a some sort of a miasma surrounding the composition of Luke that we're finding here. We, we can catch these furtive glimpses beyond it, but we can't dispel it with the information we have. But let's now hear from brother of the show Eusebius, writing in the early 300s. He says that Luke was Paul's companion. He's a physician. He also wrote Acts of the Apostles. He says that Luke is from Antioch. He's the first person to ever say that. Uh, how does he know that? beats the shit out of me. He doesn't come close to backing it up. But as we can see, he gives us no new information about Luke and when it was written. So thanks, Eusebius. Speaking of people who don't know what they're talking about, let's actually move on to brother of the show, St. Jerome. He wrote a little encyclopedia about famous Christians from the past, and I'm actually gonna read his entire entry on Luke. It's, it's pretty short. Quote, Luke, a physician of Antioch, was not unskilled in the Greek language, as his writings indicate. An adherent of the Apostle Paul and companion of all his journeying, he wrote a gospel, about which the same Paul says, We send with him a brother whose praise in the gospel is among all the churches. And to the Colossians, Luke, the beloved physician, salutes you. And to Timothy, only Luke is with me. He also wrote another excellent volume to which he prefixed the title Acts of the Apostles, a history which extends to the second year of Paul's time at Rome, that is, the fourth year of Nero, from which we learn that the book was composed in that same city. Therefore, the acts of Paul and Thecla, and all that fable about the lion being baptized by him, we reckon among the apocryphal writings, because how is it possible that the inseparable companion of the apostle in his other affairs should have been ignorant of this thing alone? Also, Tertullian, who lived near those times, mentions a certain presbyter in Asia, an adherent of the Apostle Paul, who was convicted by John of having been the author of the book, and who, confessing that he did this for love of Paul, resigned his office of presbyter. 
Some suppose that whenever Paul in his epistle says, according to my gospel, he means the book of Luke, and that Luke not only was taught the gospel history by the apostle Paul, who was not with the Lord in the flesh, but also by other apostles. This he too, at the beginning of his work, declares, saying, even as they deliver to us who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So he wrote the gospel as he'd heard it, but composed the acts of the apostles as he himself had seen. He was buried at Constantinople, to which city, in the twentieth year of Constantius, his bones, together with the remains of Andrew the Apostle, were transferred. End quote. You know, Jerome, it's just like what it says in the Eminem song. You only have one shot. And here, you had one shot to tell us something useful about Luke and his gospel and his identity, and you chose instead to use your time going off on a drunken rant about the acts of Paul and Thecla. What, what are we going to do with this guy? Honestly, uh, you'll notice that he also says that Luke came from Antioch. That is because Jerome is usually copying Eusebius, which is bad enough, but he also usually pretends that he's not copying him, which is even worse. Notice what he said, too, about the acts of Paul and Thecla. So Tertullian's story that Jerome brought up there is that the acts of Paul and Thecla was written by some boob in the late second century. And this guy apparently got called out for writing a spurious text, and he admitted it. I don't know why he admitted it. Lie and deny, bro. But notice how in Jerome's telling, the story has now morphed to where this poor guy was actually called out by John the Apostle. You know, I'm curious, did John the Apostle have access to the Alex Jones life extension technology? Like, how old was this guy when he died? 270? I mean, it was bad enough when the church was trying to claim that he lived to the time of Trajan. You know, now they've got him living all the way up to the time of Commodus. But that's neither here nor there. Jerome knows nothing about the provenance of Luke's gospel. But he did say something interesting. He said that Paul referenced Luke as the brother whose praise in the gospel is among all the churches. And that actually comes from the collection letters in 2 Corinthians. Paul basically says there that he's sending the letters in the care of this man, this brother, whom he doesn't name. Now, many have said, and I agree with this, that that's just kind of a generic recommendation. It's kind of a fill-in-the-blank scenario. So either these were real collection letters that were like used by Paul's church, and that part of them was left blank so that the name of the actual person could be filled in, or the collection letters were written later to look like they were ancient and from the time of Paul. And the reason that this famous brother isn't named is because the forger was being cautious. But either way, Jerome makes the connection and he decides to identify Luke as the brother. I mean, it's a passing interest, doesn't really tell us anything about where Luke's gospel came from. But now we move on to something called the anti-Marcionite prologues. These are short paragraph introductions to the Gospels that they show up in some copies of the Vulgate Bible. This is what it says for the one atop Luke's Gospel. Quote, The Holy Luke is an Antiochene, Syrian by race, physician by trade. As his writings indicate, of the Greek speech, he was not ignorant. He was a disciple of the apostles, and afterward followed Paul until his confession, serving the Lord undistractedly for he neither had any wife nor procreated sons. Of eighty-four years, he slept in Thebes, the metropolis of Boeotia, full of the Holy Spirit. He, when the Gospels were already written down, that according to Matthew in Judea, but that according to Mark in Italy, instigated by the Holy Spirit, in parts of Achaia, wrote down this Gospel. He who was taught not only by the Apostle, who was not with the Lord in the flesh, 
but also by the other apostles who were with the Lord. End quote. And he goes on to babble a lot more, but the point here is he's clearly following Jerome and adding to what Jerome said. I mean, he uses some of the exact same language as Jerome, but we also get a lot of legendary accretion. You know, Luke now is said to have died when he was 84 years old. He's said to have died in Boeotia. The gospel itself is said to have been written in Achaia. Now, this was the so-called anti-Marchionite prologue. There's also something called the Monarchian prologues. And in those, we can find the same skeleton of information as the anti-Marchionite prologues, but there are some changes. Like in the Monarchian prologues, Luke is said to have died when he was 74 years old, and he's said to have died in Bithynia, not Boeotia. These prologues in general are nothing more than curious artifacts. Uh, you know, these are actually the same sources where we learn things like Mark was called Stubby Fingers, for example, and that fucking Papias wrote the Gospel of John. So the prologues are worthless. What else? Justin Martyr. Uh, we talked about him in episode 19 when we discussed Matthew. Now, Justin, writing in the 150s, seems to have access to a confused mishmash of gospel-like material. He doesn't know any of the Gospels by name, but he does cite variants of certain passages that only show up in Luke, like from the birth narrative and the passion narrative in particular. It is possible to see Justin as having some form of the canonical Gospels, but it's not required. Uh, we don't know for sure whether he was using a source that the canonical Gospels also used. No, but Justin Martyr, to me, is why I hesitate with putting the Gospels too late. I think that in his time, the canonical gospels were still in the process of developing, and they drew from the same mass of disjointed material that he had access to. But now, I've put it off for far too long. It's time for Marchion. Oh boy. You know, I got into this stuff because of Marchion. Uh, back in 2013, I actually did a translation of Marchion's gospel and had it up on a website. It was MarchionitesScriptures.com. Literally, I'm not even close to joking. And I paid something like $60 a year to maintain it until I got tired of it. And Marchion is a popular subject online among people who discuss Christian origins. Now, there are some who really care about him. I mean, when talking to them, you'd think that the second century never ended. I am not precisely sure why he's such a polarizing figure. And I speak as someone who was actually in a couple of these online Marchion groups primarily to share my translation website, and even I could never figure it out. But what interested me about Marchion was that his mere existence cast doubt on the conventional story of Christian origins. You know, the fact that a major heretic could arise so early in the timeline of Christian history and question not only the teachings, but also the backstory of Christianity on such a fundamental level is striking. You know, added to which, we hear of him jaunting around the Mediterranean with a 10-letter collection of Paul with variant wording, a rogue gospel of Luke with variant wording, and he's claiming that the mainstream versions of those books, the ones we now have, are the adulterated ones. Taken by itself, it is intriguing in a unique way, in a way unlike any other aspect of early Christian history. But my thinking on Marchion has evolved somewhat. Justin Martyr, writing in the 150s, does not mention Paul. Not only that, but he does not allude to Paul's letters, not even a faint echo. And not only that, but Justin's brand of Christianity has no points of contact with anything we see in the corpus of Paul's letters, so he doesn't know Paul. But one man he does know is Marchion. From the first apology, quote, 
And then there's Marcion, a man from Pontus who's even to this day alive and teaching his disciples to believe in some other god who's superior to the creator. And he, by the aid of devils, has caused many of every nation to speak blasphemies and to deny that God is the maker of this universe and to assert that some other being greater than him has done greater works. End quote. In the time of Justin, there was a large rival Christian sect emanating from Asia Minor. They disagreed with Justin's church, the mainstream church, on some very fundamental points, but they called themselves Christians. And not only that, Justin says that they, for some reason, were treated differently by the Romans than his own Christian sect was. Specifically, they were not persecuted, and Justin talks about how unfair that is. But the evidence from Paul's letters, and the evidence from passages like this one of Justin, would suggest that the old religion of Paul, the independent sect that I described at the beginning of episode 7, was, by the middle of the 100s AD, under the de facto leadership of a man named Marcion. On previous shows, I've compared him to an archbishop, somewhat for convenience, but I don't think his leadership was actually an official, titular situation. I rather think that he started out as a kind of a booster and became the head of the Pauline sect by default. He's said to have taught that there was a separate God, a God who was outside of space and time and embodied pure love and perfection, and the God of this world, the Old Testament God, was at best a God of justice and at worst, a god of sometimes arbitrary cruelty. And he opposed any suggestion of a connection between Christianity and Judaism. He is said to have championed Paul at the expense of all the other so-called apostles. He's said to have used only one gospel, which was somehow related to the Gospel of Luke, and he had a collection of letters by Paul. The wording of both the gospel and the collection of letters did not match what we now know as the canonical versions and the, the mainstream Christians say that that's because he pared them down and cut out what he didn't like. They say he gnawed away at them like a mouse. And they say that he rejected all the other texts that now appear in the New Testament. And he rejected the idea that the Old Testament scriptures ought to be used by Christians in any capacity. Now, in my view, and removing the filter of nonsense that the mainstream Christians of that era tended to apply to their opponents, what we seem to have here is the natural progression of Paul's religion as the decades have passed. And the core of true believers in Paul's church has coalesced around the leadership of a strong personality in Marcion, and these are the steadfast remnant that refuse to be absorbed into early Catholicism. But we can't dwell too much on topics like these because our concern today is with the Gospel of Luke and Marcion's implications for its date. And like I said, from the time of Irenaeus, the church fathers all agree that Marcion mutilated the Gospel of Luke. And Tertullian, in the year 207, writes a series of five books called Against Marcion. And in the fourth book, he attacks Marcion's Gospel. Now here is where I depart with the majority of radical critics, except for the great Saint Gordy, Gordon Rylands, because I do not believe that Tertullian had any idea of what was actually in Marcion's Gospel. And what's more, to me, the idea that Marcion even had a gospel or endorsed a gospel is merely an assumption. Because think back to what I said earlier about Valentinus and Basilides. I pointed out that the religions, the schools that were founded by these arch heretics survived them. And they continued to develop and they raised up major figures, known individuals and teachers and prophets. In the case of Marcion's sect, we know the names of quite a few of them. 
These later members of the sect could have been the ones who co-opted the Gospel of Luke, or at least an earlier text variant of the Gospel of Luke, and used it for their own ends. Because to me, there's always been an inconsistency at the heart of these discussions about Marcion's Gospel, which is that, given what we supposedly know about Marcion, what the hell use would this guy have had for a synoptic Gospel? If his very purpose was to sunder Christianity and Jesus from their Jewish roots, then why would he feel the need to use or co-opt or edit or, God forbid, even write, as some claim, a, a document like a synoptic gospel that is utterly steeped in Judaism from beginning to end, no matter how you parse and edit and try to reconstruct it? And there have even been those in the past, and some even today, who've claimed that the original gospel, you know, before Mark, before Matthew, before anything else, was actually a kind of like a super text that was written by Marcion, and that it didn't have the type of Jewish-derived content that we see in the canonical gospels. And the canonical gospels were really derived from Marcion's original text. I've never been able to subscribe to that theory. And I think it unnecessarily complicates matters to say that Marcion had a hand in creating Luke, or even proto-Luke. But to find out what Marcion can tell us about Luke, if anything, let's go back to Tertullian and his assault on Marcion's supposed gospel. For far too long, we've assumed that Tertullian had a big book in front of him that was, here's Marcion's gospel and his versions of Paul's letters, and here's Marcion's commentary on the gospels and letters, and now Tertullian's going to respond to it. The first thing to remember is that Tertullian never says that he's holding a copy of Marcion's scriptures. In fact, he doesn't even share the source that he's using. Marcion is said to have written a book called Antitheses, and it seems sometimes like that's the actual book that Tertullian might be working off of, but it's never really made clear. But he had a Marcionite book of some kind. And what I believe is that this was a late Marcionite commentary that did maybe contain some genuine things that Marcion may have written but went far afield into other topics as well. When Tertullian criticizes Marcion's gospel, he doesn't seem like he's making his way through a text and stopping and commenting on it and saying, okay, here's what he removed, here's what he added. It sounds like he's reading a confused commentary on a variety of topics, including the gospels and Paul's letters sometimes coming in for comment. What it actually sounds like is a derisive spot commentary on the New Testament. And not only that, but the book that Tertullian's working off of at times appears to contain more than just Marcionite beliefs. It appears sometimes to contain the beliefs of what we might call classical Gnostics. Because sometimes Tertullian will veer off and he'll begin to criticize generic Gnostic opponents based on something he apparently read in this book that he's working off of. And you know, and you're thinking, sir, I thought you said you were going to discuss Marcion's gospel. I mean, I think Tertullian wanted to write a critique of Marcion's scriptures, but he didn't have them to hand. And the only thing he could scrape up was some whack-ass New Testament commentary that may have included some Marcionite material. But we can try to reconstruct this book based on some of the comments that he makes about what it says. And it seems that this book said that there was one single unadulterated gospel in the beginning that was preached by true apostles. This book seems to have said that that gospel was later interpolated by defenders of Judaism with the purpose of combining the law and the prophets with Christ. This book seems to have said that the book of Revelation was to be rejected and not considered scripture. This book seems to have had a passage in it that denounced certain other written gospels and used Paul's statements in the letter to the Galatians to do so. 
Specifically, the book rejected these other gospels by playing up the conflict in Galatians between Paul on the one side and Peter, James, and John on the other that's depicted in Galatians. By the way, if you happen to be familiar with Tertullian's books against Marcion, this happens to be the famous passage where he says that Marcion found the letter to the Galatians, which some have taken to mean that Marcion was the, the first to ever cite Galatians, and therefore maybe he forged it. But this book, in talking about Galatians and this conflict between Paul and the three pillar apostles, what the book was actually saying was that Paul preached the true gospel, and the pillar apostles didn't. And therefore, their gospels are not to be trusted. They're written gospels. In other words, the author of this book that Tertullian was refuting was rejecting at least the gospels of Mark and John. And because Mark is, of course, not mentioned in Galatians, but Peter is, then we may rightly assume that in saying that Peter didn't preach a true gospel, the author of this Markianite book was in fact rejecting the gospel of Mark. In other words, the author knew the legend about Mark's gospel being associated with Peter. In other words, the author of this book that Tertullian is writing against, the author of this book from which we get almost all of our information about what Markion's gospel supposedly contained, this author is aware of a complete New Testament collection. In other words, this book was likely written after the 170s AD, and it wasn't written by Marcion, and it certainly wasn't a text of Marcion's gospel and his copies of the letters. And when we see that clearly, all of the strange things about Tertullian's comments about it come clearly into focus. You know, weird things that have confused theologians for centuries, like Tertullian keeps saying over and over again that Marcion chopped up and edited the gospel of Luke, Yet he accuses him four times of deleting passages that are found only in Matthew. And it clearly answers the question as to why Tertullian does not just come out and explain what source he's using. On the contrary, he seems to be trying to conceal it, perhaps because he recognizes on some level that it doesn't actually support his hypothesis. And his hypothesis is that Marcion mutilated the Gospel of Luke. Every mainstream Christian of his time knows this, Irenaeus said it, the people in Tertullian's church probably say it and recite it like a mantra. It's one of those things that Christians of the time appeared to just know, just like how every modern American knows that Arizona has a dry heat. And so that's his starting point. And if you know these early Christian authors, nothing is going to sway them from their initial hypothesis, from their initial prejudice. So what does Tertullian do? He seizes on anything in this book that indicates that the commentator's wording of a gospel passage varies from his own version. Now, the fact that this would happen, the fact that the wording of someone else's New Testament text would slightly vary is not surprising, and especially in that era. But in Tertullian's mind, when he finds the commentator quoting a gospel passage in variant wording, he seizes on that as evidence that Marcion corrupted the gospel and the letters. Uh, another thing, uh, like I said, he's following what seems to have been some kind of a spot commentary where the author would jump from one topic to another. Uh, the author seems to have been much more concerned with making larger theological points than doing uh, like a running commentary on the text of a specific gospel. Well, as such, the author will tend to jump from one gospel passage to another, and Tertullian will seize on that as evidence that Marcion's Bible lacked the passages that the commentator didn't talk about. In fact, he himself reveals that that's what he's doing. He gives away the game. I mean, he appears to admit that he doesn't have Marcion's gospel in front of him when he says that he's going to refute it by induction. 
He says that since Marcion's whole system is to separate the Old and the New Testaments, that in his gospel, quote, it's certain also that with this view, he has erased everything that was contrary to his own opinion, end quote. In plain English, what he's saying there is, I don't really know what Marcion's gospel said, but I bet he cut out a lot of stuff about Judaism and the law and the prophets. So if this commentary I'm reading doesn't touch on a specific passage in Luke, I'm gonna treat it as if Marcion deleted that passage, probably because it had to do with Judaism. At the end of all things, Tertullian simply doesn't seem to be sharing what Marcion's gospel said. And what all this means is, we therefore can't be sure at all whether Marcion back in the 130s, 140s, 150s had anything to do with Luke's gospel. We just can't. And this is a major paradigm shift for some, but it's better in the end, and I hope you'll accept that, and I'll tell you why. If you take up any edition of Marcion's gospel, and there have been various reconstructions that have been done, you can use Harnack, Jason Badoon, Dieter Roth, James Hamlin Hill, and you take those reconstructions and you take the text of canonical Luke and you highlight what these analysts have said was in Marcion's gospel, well, you quickly find that Marcion's gospel supposedly contained material from all over canonical Luke, except for the birth narratives. Some of Q shows up there, some of the Markin material shows up there, a lot of the Lucan special material shows up there, you know, even like some of the passion and resurrection material, to the extent that we are forced to ask, what kind of alternative gospel was this? It just seems like a standard text variant of canonical Luke, at best. I can believe that some Marcionites of the late second century used a gospel that was similar to canonical Luke in some ways and different in others. These may have been Marcionites who bought into the mainstream Christian idea that Luke's gospel was written by a companion of Paul, and they took it in and they made changes to it, such that by Tertullian's time, their text of Luke was now essentially a variant version. And in this, I say, to my great shame, that I am technically putting forth a conservative opinion. Because I'm even inadvertently agreeing with the church fathers that what everyone calls Marcion's gospel was, in fact, an altered form of Luke. However, where I differ from the conservatives and the church fathers is that they all assume that Luke is an ancient text and that Marcion came along 70 years later and that's when he went after it with his sponge. But what I'm saying is that Marcion, when he lived, when he operated, he himself had no knowledge of the gospel of Luke. And there are those who try to reconstruct the Marcionite gospel based on these notices by Tertullian, and they find that there are so many passages in these reconstructions where they're like, you know, why would this quote or passage be in this text? I mean, I thought this guy believed in two separate gods. Uh, I thought that this guy believed that Judaism had been superseded. Yet he still has, for example, Jesus appearing on the mountain in glory next to Moses and Elijah. And when you look at the reconstructions for that passage, that, that transfiguration passage, you find that the one change that Marcion's gospel supposedly made to it was to specify that actually it was James and John who followed Jesus up the mountain as opposed to John and James, like it says in canonical Luke. So whatever this text is that we're reading in these reconstructions, it's the text of a very late document. And as I'm saying, one that is even later than canonical Luke. All this to say that Marcion cannot give us any early attestation for Luke's gospel. And I wanna close this section with an observation made by St. Gordy himself, quote, 
When we observe that where Tertullian's charge against Marcion of corrupting his manuscript can be tested, it resolves itself usually into example of a difference of manuscript readings, while not once can Tertullian by a direct comparison of his own manuscript with Marcion state definitely that a certain passage was wanting from the latter, no other conclusion is possible than that Tertullian did not have Marcion's manuscript before him. End quote. It could just as well be that Marcion never acknowledged any gospel, but that some of his followers after his death thought that there should be an acknowledged one, and maybe they were jealous of the fact that the Orthodox Church had one, and they took up a copy of Luke and claimed it and moved on. So that's Marcion. And I'm getting the strong sense that I should maybe close my DMs for a stretch, but moving on. We can also briefly mention certain echoes of Luke that are supposed to show up in undateable Christian texts like Second Clement and the letters of Ignatius. There's one broad point that I'd like to make on these things. I'm reminded, when thinking of things like Ignatius, of the film Jurassic Park. Because what happened was that they were getting this dinosaur blood out of amber to get the DNA, but they, didn't, uh, they weren't getting enough DNA to reconstruct the full animal, so they were supplementing it with frog DNA. There's an analogy here to the Christian text. The text of Second Clement and the letters of Ignatius are like the pure dinosaur DNA. They seem to have useful information for Christian origins, but the problem is they don't give us enough information to let us reconstruct their place in history. So we can't reconstruct the full dinosaur from them. So what we find is that frog DNA has been added to them by theologians. And the frog DNA in this analogy is these later traditions that say things like Ignatius was a bishop in the time of Trajan or Second Clement was written by the guy who was bishop of Rome in 96 AD or at least in Second Clement's case, it may have been a guy who wrote a sermon that was based on a genuine letter that that bishop had written. And it's like this extra tradition is unsubstantiated. It's worthless. First of all, it often comes from hundreds of years later from guys like Eusebius, but it also doesn't make sense. But the frog DNA of these traditions is very much a part of the dating scheme that theologians have used to date the Gospels. But if we really want to assign dates to things like Ignatius and Second Clement, we have to use only internal clues and the kind of analysis we're doing right now, which is to see when the book was first quoted or used by later authors. You know, we can't take these traditional statements at face value. But the theologians are well aware that if they lose these traditions, then they're flying blind, essentially. And that's why they like to use what I call the six words when it comes to these traditions. There is no reason to doubt. You know, there's no reason to doubt that Ignatius operated early in the second century. I mean, yeah, there is, actually. Unless we can securely date Ignatius and Second Clement, we can't use the faint echoes of Luke's gospel that we find in them as a basis to assign a date to the gospel of Luke. And I myself, for what it's worth, would put both Ignatius and Second Clement in the 170s. Um, Second Clement can't be too late because Second Peter uses it, but enough about these undateable books. Lastly, we can briefly note that the earliest manuscripts, the earliest physical copies of Luke, all come from no earlier than the turn of the third century. So 200 AD, at the absolute earliest for the physical copies that we have. So now that we've seen the reception, the earliest mentions of Luke, let's see about our terminus dates, our limits for when Luke's gospel could have been composed. 
On the left side of the timeline, we might be a little more secure in putting the Gospel of Luke after 70 AD, as we'll see, because the author seems to have a much greater awareness of the Jewish war, but we don't want to be accused of anti-supernaturalistic bias because those statements about the war are actually framed as predictions of Jesus. So let's stay on the safe side, and as we've done with the other Gospels, let's use an early terminus date of 26 AD, the latest historical event mentioned the commencement of Pontius Pilate's prefecture over Judea. Now, this is interesting because out of all the gospel authors, Luke goes the most out of his way to precisely set the time of the events that he's recording. But as we see, all these efforts give us no new information. For example, he says that it was during the reign of Herod Antipas as Tetrarch of Galilee. But Herod ruled from 4 BC to 39 AD and that doesn't help us narrow down our time window at all, so thanks for nothing, Luke. He says that Philip was the tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis. That was from 4 BC to 34 AD, so that also really doesn't affect our timeline in any way. He says that Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Uh, no one knows what he's actually talking about with this. This is basically an anachronism. So go back to sleep, Luke. Uh, lastly, he says that this all took place during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, Annas stopped being high priest in 15 AD, and Caiaphas was high priest from 18 to 36. If there was only ever one high priest at a time, why does Luke bother to include Annas in this formula? Well, again, no one knows, but I think it's because the editor was trying to harmonize canonical Luke to John's gospel, where... Annas and Caiaphas are both major players in Jesus' fate. So we see that Luke has given us, in addition to Pontius Pilate, six additional historical figures to help us triangulate the date. Annas, Caiaphas, Lysanias, Philip, and Herod, and also Tiberius. He says it happened in the 15th year of Tiberius. The regnal year of a Roman emperor is always tricky because it's like, you know, what date are you using as your start point? but generally the 15th year of Tiberius is considered to be 26 AD. So don't you find it somewhat interesting that Luke piled on six additional time cues to what Mark and Matthew had, but we are still no more clear on when Jesus actually lived because the reign of all these people overlaps significantly. I mean, it's almost like the synchronism here, the series of time cues is only window dressing. After all that, after wasting the time calculating the reigns of all those people, we are still back at our starting point, 26 AD as the earliest possible year that Luke's gospel could have been written. Now, I want to briefly emphasize, this doesn't mean that those cue sayings, you know, those individual sayings and pericopes all necessarily have to have been written after 26 AD, but we're trying our best to trace the timeline of Luke as a complete literary product. So 26 AD as a start date is the best we can do for now. Now, briefly on these dates from secular history, if they're mentioned in a written source, I tend to accept them only provisionally. If they're mentioned in a written source and backed up by inscriptions, then that's basically the gold standard for me. So that's to address any confusion from this fact that I'm doing a whole show about Christian dates being wrong, but I appear to accept these Roman dates without question. It's just that not only are the Christian dates backed up by nothing, but there seem to have been at least two careful attempts to obscure their actual time of writing. You know, one by the original authors and another one in our time by the mainstream theologians. 
I mean, it's not deliberate on the theologian's part. It's not like a conspiracy theory, but they try to inject all this extraneous crap and they confuse everything. So we have to take it upon ourselves to reconstruct the Christian date scheme. What about the latest possible date Luke could have been written? I mean, if we're talking about canonical Luke, which is, you know, Luke in its present form, we have to be aggressive and put the upper limit for that thing all the way at the time of Irenaeus, around 190. But there were, of course, early variants of Luke. Uh, we talked about proto-Luke. So as we did with Matthew, let's be judicious and put the upper limit for proto-Luke at around 150. And this allows, this is like insurance. This allows for the possibility that Justin Martyr was in possession of a form of Luke, which I don't think so, but the 150 date at least allows for that possibility. And with this, we are now prepared in the next episode to see how the theologians have tackled the problem of assigning a date to it. Today, we've examined the structure and composition of the Gospel of Luke and shared the theory that it was a composite document. And we also examined its early reception, the first authors to be aware of it or to quote from it. And we did this to set up the discussion on the probable date of the Gospel of Luke and hopefully to demonstrate that this book was written later than commonly supposed. We continue with our Bright in the Corners miniseries and the episode next time will focus on the dates that are assigned to Luke by the theologians. And I, of course, will share my own ideas about its date. We asked in the beginning whether anything we could find about Luke's structure and reception would require us to give this gospel an early date, a first century date. And I think we found that there's nothing preventing us so far from putting this gospel in the second century where I think it belongs. For now, in the name of St. Candida, we declare the gospel of Luke to be composite and spurious. Thank you for listening. This criticism is ended. Go in peace. What other stories of mythology do you think of as historical reality? 